So uh, I'm going to open with a joke. Oh, no. Okay. This all is, right. This is the joke. This better be good. My wife tells me jokes all the time, and I fucking hate them. No, this is a good one. Okay. Uh, hey, Tom. Yes, Ray. Uh, did you hear that uh, the, uh, the R-rated Blu-ray of uh, Batman Superman is going to have, like, an extra 30 minutes or so of footage? Is that the joke? No, no, no. Oh, so. That's uh, the joke. That's not the punchline, though. Okay, no, I mean, like, because I'm already laughing at the prospect, although I should be crying at the prospect of having to watch another 30 minutes of that shit show. But, okay, I'll play along. No, I haven't heard. Apparently, uh, they're going to all be establishing shots. <laughs> Again. I'll be here all week. I find it very difficult to actually buy into that, which is why it's a joke. Like you, you sort of want to laugh at it, but you also want to cry well, at I it. Well, I guess deep down inside, I want it to be true. Yeah. Well, not 30 minutes of establishing shots, but <laughs> well, I would I like mean, for it to be true. Yeah, when you like spread them all out over the movie. Speaking of which, uh, establishing shots, <laughs> do, do I go, do you want me to do this again? <laughs> no, man. Am I'm... I making, no, no, because I'm ready this time. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I'm ready this time. You came prepared. I, yeah. Well, I, I just comp- actually thought about it right before we started. Okay. Because I thought you might spring it on me. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I better come up with something. Because- well, to do it two weeks in a row would be kind of lame, I think. So I should probably do it. But save it for next time. That way. I might forget next time. <laughs> Write it down. I got a pen. This is the modern age, man. Multi-million dollar, multi-million dollar pen and notebook paper with like coffee stains. And this is some bullshit. Or I could, you know, we got that dot matrix printer. I could tear some pages off of there. You could write it down on the green and white alternate rule. We paper. need that because it gives us all of our metrics for our, our podcast, the greatest podcast in the world. Right. We can't spare even one square inch of that dot matrix paper. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah. So, Denny's got to go over those reports when we get mm-hmm. done. That I won't pay attention to because Denny's telling Which he me. did. We were just talking about that, how our, our numbers are just like pretty much the whole world's listening now and calling. So many phone calls. Yeah, I know. We just keep deleting them. None of them have been good enough to put on the air. I'll be honest. I was a little disappointed by our very first call. Yeah. The question has to be of a caliber that I consider worthy. So congratulations, KJ. You might be the only caller whose questions we ever play on the air. You, The one and only. Yeah. Congrats. So, I don't know if you can get anywhere with that in life. Well, it's the best he's ever going to get. <laughs> I don't know. I'm so I, can't. I mean, you know, having kids, getting married, getting a job in St. Louis, you know, working for uh, Boeing or McDonnell Douglas, whoever the fuck he works for, you know, like none of that compares to having his question played on the air on this podcast, the greatest podcast in the world, Gaming AM. Well, none of that compares to uh... your mother. No, I um, I would say that I've had some time to reconsider my position on that call. Mm-hmm. And I think it's comic genius now. Yeah. It's become a part of the tapestry of gaming AM. Congratulations, sir. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you have made history. You have changed the world mm-hmm. for the better because yeah. that is going to be a frequent soundbite. So good for you. Yeah. You can take that to the bank. It's, <laughs> it's in the books, man. So uh, what are we on now? Episode eight, huh? Episode eight. That's insane. Wait, we haven't done our introduction. Do the introduction.
Oh, okay. Who who am I to you or who are you to me? What's the pop culture reference going to be this time? I'm Ray Price, former EGM editor, co-creator of Gaming FM, greatest video game radio station ever in the world. It's not around anymore. Best in the world. Yes. (laughs) If you've seen the commercial, you know where that's coming from and... If you well, fuck it. Of course, you've seen yeah, the commercial. Who has it? Yeah, exactly. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen our commercial, what the hell? Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> uh, with me, as always, though, is uh, the Ken to my Ryu. Now I'm back to being second fiddle. Yeah. This is how it's going to go. Yeah. All right. Well, just wait till I do the introduction. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? You just better watch your back because <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to. Yo, Tom, you just need to look in the mirror and realize. Inside jokes. We'll probably never tell them to you. And uh, that's how we like it. Tom Tolios. Hello. Give yourself a, you know, I, I did former EGM editor and co-creator. Of, well, you could say co-creator of Gaming FM, too. Am I a co-creator, though? Or am I just like a, I'm not a creator. You brought you me are. on. I mean, I was like the best thing about I created site. Red Radio. We all created Gaming FM. Okay. So I love are, that. Co-creator of Gaming FM yeah. and uh, writer extraordinaire, peerless blogger, and um, probably the smartest guy you've ever met. Except for Ray. We're like one in one A. <laughs> Me and Ray are the smartest. Yeah. So Melissa and I, my wife, okay. on Tuesday not this past Tuesday, but the previous Tuesday. As we're talking right now, it is May 5th. So it's on the eve of Civil War being released in the United States officially. And a lot of places have probably shown it on Wednesday and Thursday night, but the actual premiere date for the movie is May 6th. So this is May 5th. This is the eve of Civil War. Mm -hmm. But not this past Tuesday, so not May 3rd, but on April 26th, Melissa and I went to Chicago because they were having uh, Alien Day, it was LV426 Day, at the Music Box Theater, which is not as cool as I remember it. <laughs> I remember seeing a lot of anime in first run at the Music Box. Now, I will give the Music Box credit in that they're a, a movie theater that likes to do a lot of special engagements. They like to show a lot of really cool movies. They like to show a lot of unusual things. It's the kind of place where if nobody else is showing it or if it's some obscure thing, you could bet that music box is showing like i said i saw the second vampire hunter d movie there on the big oh, screen geez. i saw spriggan there on the big screen wait a minute there was a second one yeah i didn't know that yeah there was a second one um it was done i don't know who the guy was that did it but it's the same animation studio that did ninja scroll really? the movie version of ninja scroll yeah so um, i never i didn't know that guy because oh, that was one of the classics that we used to always watch you right. know like back when we we started. Right. Well, they did another one. Well, wow. he has a long-running novel series in Japan and stuff. So, okay. there's a lot of spin-off. Material. So, that first movie was likely a like a compilation of a bunch of collected volumes maybe. Is that what it oh, is? Oh, I don't know. It might have been an original work, who can say? Oh. I, I really I don't know don't much know. about it. I certainly oh, didn't know there was a sequel. Here's what I know about Vampire Hunter D. I watched it because people told me it was some important work in anime like it was just it was one of those animes where it's like have you seen akira have you seen vampire Mm -hmm. hunter d Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the second one they showed it there uh and again like i saw spriggan when was that oh god this would have been the 90s wow 
Uh, I think I saw Akira on the big screen there once, but I'd seen the movie many times. I actually, the first time I watched Akira, it was uh, raw, no subtitles. Oh. But I knew the story because yeah. I read the comic book, which was being published over here by Epic. Heads exploding, innards coming out. You get the gist. Yeah, you Actually, you gist. don't. Um, yeah, I'm just yeah. making a joke, but that movie is pretty complicated. You do yeah. kind of need to know what's going and, on. And the comic book is really complicated, too. Yeah. I mean, but Akira's shit, that's a whole podcast in and of itself <laughs> yeah but uh so we saw went and saw alien actually it was a double feature it was alien and aliens oh cool and uh we didn't stick around for aliens why because the experience was complete shit for me <laughs> oh really what happened well we got up there like five minutes before because the place was like dilapidated or what well it's an old movie theater okay it's a very old movie theater and it doesn't have stadium seating it doesn't really have good sound it's like if you want to go see a movie th- if you want to go see a movie in the old style like the 60s 70s if you want to go see a movie in a theater where it's like that mm-hmm. the music box is your place okay it's kind of like our or it's an art theater really now because it's it's all preserved the way it was back then. But if you're looking for a film-going cinematic experience, I don't recommend it. Yeah. Here's what I'm getting at. We get up there and there's five minutes before the movie starts. And we do get lucky enough to find a parking spot close by, which is crazy. The Cubs were in town and they were playing home game that night. You know, the Cubs are kicking ass this year. So, of course, everybody's all up on them. Sure. This little old lady standing on the side of the road with a sign that says park. So we just decided to take her up on that. We parked like two blocks away from it. Out Expensive. of the blue. Oh, it's 20 bucks. Yeah. But it's about the same you're going to pay to park anywhere. Anywhere downtown. there. Yeah. Especially on a night when the Cubs are in town. Like yeah. right now when they're doing well. We had driven around the block like four or five times and we couldn't find any parking. And then we just, this little lady just materialized out of thin air. And we were like, okay, we're going to park there. So we managed to get to the theater. But then the venue was packed. So yeah. we couldn't get good seats. Yeah. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is in the far back row, which is where we had to sit, the screen is not very big. Sure. I didn't really feel immersed by the movie. But the the worst part of it was because it was a special event day. Apparently, there were a bunch of theaters all across the nation that were that were doing LV426 Day. Okay. And um, there were double feature Alien and Aliens. Like 20th Century Fox was promoting it. But they weren't really supporting it very well from what I understand. But they were like, hey, if you want to do it, show it. You know, we can celebrate the day. From the very beginning, the crowd is participating in the movie. Oh, so it's like The Room. Yeah, which is – but it's weird because – But it's alien. Yeah, right before the movie starts, there's this guy that's doing a presentation and he's talking about it and stuff. And he's like, who's never seen Alien before? And there's like a good section, about 20, 30 people in the theater that have never seen this movie before. And now they're going to see it with like an audience participation and it's going to be yeah. kind of ruined. Audi- I guess audience participation isn't really like the right way to say it. But let me give you an example. You've seen Alien, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Okay. It was one of my – it's one of my bucket list movies. And I am sad to say that after seeing it on the big screen at the music box, especially for a event celebrating that movie – it still remains on my bucket list. I still don't feel like I've seen it properly on the big screen. So like, for example, people are talking and they're interacting with the movie. Like, uh, Oh, don't go in there. You don't want to do that. Like all the fans that are in the theater, they're smart fans. They know what's about to happen and they're like having fun with it. Whereas that's not the experience that I wanted. I, wanted to go and sit in this movie theater and experience this sort of intense, dread-filled horror movie 
in space. This wasn't having it. They were laughing at really weird times in the movie. It was really strange. It was just like a bunch of fans with the inside track on the film that were just acting like a bunch of nerds. I wanted like a pure movie going experience. Yeah, I'm you not... do that with like a like the room, you know, a bad movie or like a like a comedy movie. Maybe I could see that, but like with Alien, there are a lot of reactions I could expect during the scene when the chestburster comes out yeah, of yeah. Kane. Applause is not <laughs> one of them, but it happened. Yeah, they cheered like the star of the movie had arrived, and in a sense, the alien is the star of the movie. Yeah, but I only ever cheer for the serial killer in a movie when I hate the crew or when I hate the cast. Yeah. I like the cast of Alien. I don't want anything bad to happen to them. Yeah, like this movie is not. It's not Friday the Thirteenth. It's not. Nightmare on Elm Street. These are not scenes you're meant to cheer. When the characters are getting killed, in my opinion, you're not meant to applaud the alien's murder kill streak. This, like a horror movie, doesn't necessarily always take itself seriously. This, this movie one does, does, though. Yeah, this does. That's just a thing. I guess when there's an event like this, you know, that's it's kind of become that because of movies probably like The Room and all these things. People just go and, like, go to have fun. So now these events have sort of become that. These young people go and... Let's go watch Alien, man. You know, instead of like you, you went there like, I'm 40 and I want to sit down and experience this. Because I didn't get to do it as a child. Right, 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 right. Because obviously I was way too young to see Alien in 1979 when it aired. I was was a kid. They weren't going to take me to – my parents were going to take me to see Alien. Right. One of these days these kids are going to grow up and they're going to see some movies or they're going to experience some movies in ways that will affect them. Yeah. And they're going to wait for their opportunity to go see those movies on the big screen. And when it's a pop culture event, they're going to be in the place where I am, where it's like, man, I saw this movie when I was young or whatever. I did end up seeing Alien many times on VHS and DVD. So, I mean, I've seen the movie plenty of times. But not. I wouldn't have believed you in a thousand years if you would have told me you're going to get a more wholesome and fulfilling cinematic experience seeing a movie at a modernized theater in Joliet, Illinois – than by going to see a classic film at an art theater right. in Chicago. The script was completely flipped. When I went and saw 2001 at Clockwork Orange, those theaters were pretty packed. Mm-hmm. And people were just watching the movie. Yeah. But then I go, to Ailey, I go to the music box in Chicago for the celebration of this movie. And it was like not at all the experience I was expecting. <laughs> it was like a party. Man. And my, my wife was like, oh, well, you know, they sell beer in there. And I'm like, okay, but... It's alien. It's not a movie to be ridiculed or laughed at. It's like it's a good movie. Now, there are some dumb things in the movie, and I never really noticed it until I watched it these last couple times. Actually, one of them I knew, but I'd forgotten. Yeah. Very briefly. Number one, when Lambert is like, let's just take the shuttle. Let's get the hell out of here and take our chances on the shuttle. Yeah. And Ripley's like, the shuttle won't take four. And I'm like, why? Who the fuck builds a space shuttle or an escape shuttle on a spaceship that can't take the whole goddamn crew? Hey, man, did you ever see Titanic? Okay. (laughs) It's a fair point, and it is realistic. Maybe it was the first spaceship, you know? Just like Titanic was the first. But it wasn't. I got the impression that it was a big company. They've been doing it for a while. They've been doing it for a while. But, like, it's only only seven people. It's not like the Titanic where you had thousands of people and there's no way because they thought it was unsinkable. This is a crew of seven people. Surely you can give them two shuttles 
Or, or just cram in there, sit in each other's laps, and get the fuck out of here. Yeah, well, the idea is they're so far out, they're going to have to sleep. They're going to have to be in hibernation oh, for well. months, and there's not enough food on the shuttle. But it's seven people. Can't you make a shuttle that'll seat seven? They're going out there the far reaches of space to mine yeah, yeah. for the company. I don't get it. I mean, to me, like especially also Titanic was in the past sure. where we lived in like a less safe environment. This is supposed to be the future. And shit, where I work now, there's all kinds of safety precautions in place. Mm. I can't imagine a future where a big corporation that could be liable for dead people wouldn't give them a way to survive. Yeah. Because then they'd be paying out all kinds of lawsuits. But movie written in the 70s. Yeah. Different time. Yeah, well, they needed they needed an excuse for not just all jumping on the shuttle and leaving right away. That'd be a weird movie. Oh, they just they just left. They just leave. <laughs> Credits. <laughs> that movie was like twenty minutes long. That's so weird. Or they could have done something else with the entire movie. Like they could have just they jump in the uh, shuttle and they go to like some space truck stop, and it just becomes a completely different movie. And then a bison's there trying to run them over with a starship. Yeah, come off the rails. Yeah. Well, I mean, this conversation just went off the rails like a movie like that would have right. had. They just jumped on the shuttle. That was just weird to me. Like, hmm. Also, when uh, when they're hunting for it before they know it's gotten big mm-hmm. and they trap the cat in the net. Yes. But then, like, uh, Harry Dean Stanton, Brett, he lets the cat go. And they're like, well, now we're going to pick it up on the tracker again. You know, so we have to catch it. Go get it. Yeah. And they let him go off by himself. And Ripley, who's Mrs. Rules in that movie, Captain Dallas, Tom Skerritt, Right before they're on this scene, he's like, you travel in threes, stay in communication at all times. And like at the first opportunity for them to isolate Go get the cat. The character, Go get the cat. Okay, we'll be <laughs> over here doing something. Yeah. Also, I kind of question Dallas's judgment. Parker and Brett don't get along with Ripley. She goes down there to see how the repairs are going. And that's a pretty authentic scene because, you know, we've all worked at a place where, like, some manager just fucking comes down there, comes to where you are to see what you're doing. And you're like, you don't know what the fuck is going on in here. Just leave. Mm -hmm. Just go away and let me do my job. We've all had that moment in our lives. Oh, sure. And yet Dallas pairs her with them. Why wouldn't Dallas go with the troublemakers because he's the captain and send Ripley with Lambert and Ash, who are people that are more likely to follow rules and orders? This just seemed like a dumb decision to me. Mm. And then, of course, the infamous scene where uh, Ash, played by Ian Holm, tries to kill Ripley by rolling up a newspaper and jamming it down her throat. Yeah. That's so stupid. Yeah, I do remember that. Maybe when she slammed him against the wall, like his circuitry got screwed up or something. But I was just like, of all the ways to try to kill someone, even if you're an android that can't think straight, like your positronic brain isn't working, roll up a porno mag and jam it down her throat. He's, like, uh, he's no Lance Hendrickson, man. But all the dumb things in the movie aside, it's still a super influential movie. Sure. And it brings me back to what I was going to say about your joke. That movie has got fantastic establishing shots. Mm-hmm. There are great transitions. Yeah. You know, and great effects in those transitions for the time. Yeah. I mean, it looked great. Yeah, they, especially like the ship scenes. Yeah. It all looked good. It all looked good for the time. And even some of it holds up even today. But Zack Snyder should probably watch a Ridley Scott movie because Ridley Scott's kind of hit or miss with me. I love some of his stuff. One of my favorite movies is Kingdom of Heaven, which mm-hmm. is a Ridley Scott movie. But he's also directed some of the worst crap I can't stand. Like Prometheus is a terrible movie in my opinion. It's terrible. I have a feeling Zack Snyder likes Transformers movies. Batman v Superman was his attempt to outdo them. Mm-hmm. He probably succeeded. Like, who are your uh, who are your influences? Like, how did you get into? Oh, Michael Bay, totally. Just want to punch him. 
I don't know if he said that. I'm just making a joke, but still, wouldn't surprise me. I'd be like, yeah, see, I said that on podcast episode eight. Ed Wood. <laughs> see, I don't think Zack Snyder looks at guys that we would typically classify as directing hacks. Ridley Scott would probably be one he would cite as an influence because he is such a visual director and so is Ridley Scott. Sure. Anyway, yeah, establishing shots. That was kind of where I was going with it. was like one thing I was noticing with Alien. Melissa and I watched it last night because we had said – because everybody was talking through it. Yeah, we wanted to watch the movie, so we we just closed the we turned off the lights, closed the window, and we watched the movie, and we absorbed a lot of it much better. Yeah. Oh, the reason why we didn't stick around for Aliens postscript to the story, they were gonna they had a seventy millimeter print of the film that they found. That's kind of cool. That is cool. But I did not want to sit with that audience and watch Aliens. No, they're all gonna be fucking repeating all the Hudson jokes. No, sure. The game over and all that stuff. They're all going to be laughing at the dumb moments. Yeah, that movie, the second one, yeah, it's rife with content that you can, you know, just yeah. regurgitate. I mean, think about it. It's been regurgitated in pop culture over and over. Aliens, in terms of its influence on pop culture, is probably a more influential film than the first one. Yeah. Think about the scene at the end when Ripley says her famous line to the queen. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sit with that crowd and wait for their reaction <laughs> to that. They'll probably say it with her or some stupid thing. You know? It would have been funny just for like a morbid curiosity to sit there and be like, we were in sit Chi- in judgment of them. <laughs> we were in Chicago. It wasn't going to start till 930. Yeah. I didn't want to get home at like two in the morning because I had to work the next day. Yeah. And I wasn't really enjoying the experience. So Melissa was like, let's just leave it. I'm like, yeah, it's probably a good so idea. So you at least finished the first movie. But- yeah, we finished the first movie. And yeah. then I was like, I don't really want to sit around for aliens. I don't hold anything against those people for participating. It just wasn't what I wanted. Right, exactly. It wasn't the experience I was looking for. So. You weren't walking into the room. I would go see the room. In fact, they're, they're airing the room. They're, they're showing it. Yeah, I've heard about the uh, the audience participation in the room. So I've never gone to one, but I, I know that they like they bring spoons in and rattle them. And don't they have like the pizza too? Like yeah, I th- bring- yeah, oh, yeah. People like everything that's in the movie that can be brought in. They've got it. I think that's great for that movie, right? You know, totally. or Rocky Horror or something. like Movies that. Movies that are like hard to get through without that. If they ever showed the Star Wars Holiday Special, in a that's a really theater. great point. Movies that you can get through, the movies that you can't get through without that. I could never watch Manos without joking about it. Or I probably couldn't watch any of the Transformers movies without Riff Tracks. I watched all three of them with Riff Tracks. Well, I watched the first one. I remember well, we talked about it. We saw it in theater. Yeah. yeah, but the other two, yeah, I saw with, uh, or I don't know if they did three, but yeah, Riff Tracks commentary for sure. Yeah, I could never watch those movies without it. After uh, robots humping and robots peeing out oil and robot testicles, yeah. I'd had enough. Giant devastator balls <laughs> swinging in your face. I'd had enough. Yeah. It was bad. Uh, but speaking of old classics, I was telling you before the uh, we started that I was watching uh, The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Showed it to my kid. Now, there are two ways you can look at that movie. You could look at it as 1930s cheese, or you can look at it as, oh, my God, despite the technology available to them at the time. Look at this movie they made. Isn't that crazy? No, I think it is nuts. That movie is probably one of the most enduring films ever made. I, I haven't seen it in a while, like, you know, in its entirety. And I put it on for my kid and uh, I was just like blown away by it all over again. Like even now. Well, you probably, as you're older, you can appreciate different things about it yeah. in a much better way. You probably appreciate the production values of it. Totally. Um, the frame, the composition of the movie itself, it's really well paced. And plus, like, the um, like the cultural things. Like, they're never – like, the Scarecrow had a freaking gun 
that he was like walking around with to like defend himself. And you know, the the Tin Man has his axe that he actually like uses. You know, it's not just a prop. He like uses it to break down a door, and he's swinging at the dudes with it when they're you know the guards. And it's just like you would never see that in a movie now. You know, like, no, like a kid. no, like a kids' film. No, yeah, no, kid-oriented film. No way, man. No, I, I remember there was all this talk about them remaking the Goonies, and I was like, don't do it. No, man, don't don't fucking do it. And I remember a friend of mine was like, why don't you want them to do it? Because one of the appeals of the Goonies is in how grown up those kids are, or how, or you could conversely, how immature those kids are. They swear, they're foul mouth, they make nasty, rude jokes. Like, you couldn't do no, that no, now. Never I remember when they were talking about um, remaking Adventures in Babysitting with Raven <laughs> Simone. I'm like, no, don't do it. You're going to defang the movie. It's like, yeah. not that I'm a big purist of Adventures in Babysitting, it is what it is. But just that scene when they're on the train. And she's like, and they're like, don't fuck with the Lords of Hell. And she's like, don't fuck with the babysitter. <laughs> Raven Simone would never be caught saying that no. on the screen. That's the essence of that scene is Elizabeth Shue's character, you know, giving as good as she gets in a sense. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I don't want to see them kid down movies that are not really meant for kids. The Goonies, it's a film with children in it. It'd be rated R now. It would be rated R movie now. They'd be like, oh, that's too... Oh. Yeah. Can't say those things. They're right after I watched The Wizard of Oz. Then I watched Oz the Great and Powerful. The new one? Have the you one seen with, that? Uh, the one James Franco? James Franco? Yeah. That's a really good movie. I haven't seen it yet. It's a Sam Raimi, man. I know that. Whenever you watch anything now, this just goes right along with what we're talking about. It's basically like anything that comes out now is like watered down. You know, That's the gist of like what we're saying already. So Oz the Great and Powerful comes along, I'm thinking the same thing. This is good. And it kind of starts out the same, where it's like black and white, and then it transitions into color, and you know. But it's a prequel to uh, mm-hmm. it follows the wizard's journey, how he got to Oz in I the see. first place. And it's, oh, it's really good, man. Yeah, I, I was have, shocked by it. I was like, holy cow! I have heard really good things about it. I just have never gotten around to sitting down and watching it. It's yeah, oh no, I'm not sitting here going, yo, dude, just take off your headphones, let's watch it right now. It's like, it's good. It surprised me, you know. Mm-hmm. Not the greatest movie I've ever seen, but it did definitely surprise me. I was like, oh, well, I guess I should expect, you know, Sam Raimi. He's good, man. But you know, sometimes it's nice to have low expectations of a movie <laughs> and be pleasantly surprised. Exactly. I was like, wow, that's like a really good movie. I like. There's weird. It's weird times when you go into movies and like you don't know anything about. It. Like uh, the first Matrix movie, didn't see any trailers, didn't know anything about the movie. Somebody's like, I heard this was good. Let's go see it. I was like, when I was still young and I still went to the movie theater and I was like, all right. I was like blown away by the Matrix. Yeah. Galaxy yeah, the... Quest was another one. Didn't know anything about Galaxy Quest. Went and saw it. And that's in like my top 10 now. I love that movie. Really? It's in your top 10 of totally. all time, huh? Totally. Oh, I, yeah. I should watch it now again because when it came out, I wasn't really much of a trekker. Mm-hmm. I'm still not, but I understand the phenomenon more now than I did back then. So I wouldn't mind seeing it again, plus Alan Rickman. You know, Totally. The greatest line read in all of history is in that movie. They're opening that technology where some, uh, some electronic store. They're at the opening of an electronic store. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they make him say his line from the show. And just like the way he delivers it, it's like so Alan Rickman, like perfect. Oh, Rickman's awesome. Yeah. He was so good in everything. Yeah. Even if the movie was pure shit, he was <laughs> great in it. I think like the quintessential Alan Rickman performance... This is going to sound weird as dogma. Yeah. Like when you Metatron. When you cast Alan Rickman, you're expecting a performance like the Metatron. Just the sort of snarky, sardonic, dry humor, impatient with people, yeah. has no time for your crap, 
Like that's what I expect out of Alan Rickman. He was really good as Severus Snape in the Harry Potter movies too. Yeah, Back which to, I haven't seen. He's so good in everything. Now I have a machine gun. Ho ho ho! <laughs> I can't do it. Nobody can do it justice. No, he's the only one. God, Die Hard. That's a series that fucking got terrible, isn't it? Like I the re- Matrix, first one. Everything else. I like the second Matrix. I recognize how over the top and unnecessarily bloated. I just don't like how, like, after the first Matrix, people stopped bleeding and clothes stopped getting dirty. The first Matrix had, like, a grit to it. He got punched. He's bleeding. He got thrown on the ground. He's got dirt and dust on him, you know, and in the sequels. It's like watching um, a video game. It pulls me out of the movie. I don't believe in it anymore. He's the one, so he's always clean. Fuck that. He just fought like 80 Agent Smiths. He's dirty. He's bleeding. No? Okay. Go fuck yourselves. Bukowski, whatever they are now. Speaking of unkillable uh, protagonists, that's kind of what the problem was with Die Hard. Yeah. The first movie was all about his vulnerability. You know, him walking around barefoot, bleeding, shit, jumping down an elevator shaft was... Nearly, it was a death-defying experience. Now in these more recent movies, he can fall through a, a skylight <laughs> like 100 feet into a pool, and he just walks out with his son. And he's like, oh, that was interesting. <laughs> just, Bruce Willis doesn't look like he's given a shit in any movie he's been in for like so many years. Well, I don't put that just on him. Bruce Willis doesn't write the movies. No, but I'm saying like his performance in the movies is like exactly anything he's in. It's not just Die Hard. Anything it, he's and in. It wasn't always like that. It didn't I know. used to be that. He just phones it in now. Fucking David Addison, man. I remember what when, happened to those days. Well, what a, think about him think about his performance in 12 Monkeys. I don't know if you ever saw that. Mm-mm. It's a really good performance in that movie. It's it's a cold and cynical film, but he's really good in it. Yeah. But now it's just, he's like the quiet guy that can't get excited about anything. Or he's afraid to. Or he's like, like image, maybe? I don't. But all that aside, he didn't write the scene where, what's his character's name in Die Hard? McClane. John, John McClane. Uh, John McClane. He didn't write the scene where John McClane falls hundreds of feet through a skylight into a pool and just gets out. I'm 60 and I'm fine. Or he didn't write the scene where like one car hits another car and then it does like a fucking end over end and it passes over him perfectly. Like he didn't write those scenes. <laughs> Although he may have influenced them. Whether he influenced them or not, it kind of misses the point. It's the character's vulnerability. Yeah, right. That That's what made the first movie. That bring us back to Die Hard, worrying about the character. Yeah. And now we don't care. We don't worry about the character anymore. That's what was genius about Escape from L.A. The first one and the third one, I like. I for some reason I remember liking, you know, Samuel Jackson and the, like the third one. I remember. What you have memories of the third one? Uh, the, I I love the line. And I might be paraphrasing it here, where Samuel Jackson says, "The only things I got to do are stay black and die." <laughs> and I remember after I heard that, I started using it, <laughs> which of course is ludicrous because I'm white. Oh, but I remember, I for years at work, people would say, "You you gotta you gotta watch this TV show, or you gotta see this movie, or you gotta check this out." And I'd be like, "The only things I gotta do is stay black and die." My buddy John used to, uh, we'd walk around the neighborhood, and he would yell out, "I'm a black man in a white man's world." <laughs> I don't know what movie it's from, but he used a little skinny white kid, so it made it really funny. Yeah. So uh, and we were in like sixth grade. I had mentioned Escape from L.A. That's one of the things Escape from L.A. that was very misunderstood was that movie was lampooning what action cinema had become. Mm-hmm. Like in Escape from New York, Snake Plissken's extremely vulnerable. Yeah. You worry about the character. You know, he's, he's fallible and he can possibly be killed. 
In fact, I wouldn't have been surprised if at the end of the movie he died saving the president. Yeah, yeah. Escape from L.A., he, he's untouchable. Yeah. I, at first, I didn't get it. I'm like, man, why did they ruin the character? I'm like, oh, they didn't. They're just telling they're just a completely a different story, and yeah. they're they're satirizing what action cinema has become. I didn't get it at the time. Now I do, and I you appreciate seen the, that movie a lot more because yeah. of it. You seen the movie uh, Last Action Hero with Schwarzenegger? Yeah, that was like a a parody of maybe came a little bit too soon. Yeah, like now if Schwarzenegger made that movie, I think it would ring yeah a lot more true. Mm-hmm. But I think him lampooning himself when he was still in his prime. I think that movie was misunderstood and people didn't get it. Yeah. Like, why are you doing this? You of all <laughs> Because people. that era was still, like, going on. The action movie, that it was, like, the tail end of the 80s, 90s action movie mm-hmm. era. It was, like, still going on. So, yeah. yeah, it was, like, right in the middle. But, yeah, if that was now, it would be totally, it would come off, like, Kung Fury or something. Right. Just, like, silly. Like, yeah. People might understand the point or they might be able to empathize with the message of the film better. Yeah. If it came out now at this point in Arnold's career, like, I actually wouldn't be opposed to seeing him do a movie like that mm. where he's this guy, not even a sequel to Commando, but like a se- like a movie that's like a pseudo sequel to Commando. Where like he's this guy that's – he was known a long time ago for being this like hardcore mercenary soldier guy that just used to fucking take down Colombian drug lords every other week and rescue his daughter from terrorists and stuff like that. And he's just run down and broken down. It's just a movie that examines – where do these action heroes go to die? Mm-hmm. Like that could actually be a pretty interesting movie. I'm still waiting for the uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone uh, team up for the Contra movie. That'd be fantastic, but I don't know that I'd want to see it now. I think Sly could still pull it off. Yeah, but I don't know, man. I saw both of them in that. Uh, did you ever see that movie Escape Plan? No, I didn't. That's just, I was shocked by that flick, man. It's really good. I was like, holy cow, man! These guys actually like a decent like kind of action thriller. Isn't that the one where Sylvester Stallone is – he's a guy that's hired to break out of places? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, like, want to test their security mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, so they bring him in, like, try to break out and we want to find, like, all our security flaws, you know, okay. so he breaks out. But then there's a dude that he works with that wants to, like, get rid of him. So he puts him in this one prison on purpose knowing that he can't break out of this one. This dude's built, like, a perfect prison and puts him in there and meets – Schwarzenegger in there. And Who's a convict, right? Yeah, and they team up and try to get out. Yeah, it's a really it's interesting It's got, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy who runs the prison, the warden, is, um, he, he was, uh, he played Jesus. Uh, Jim Caviezel. Oh, really? Yeah. He's the uh, the eccentric bad guy. Is that the last time, well, it's not the last time anyone's played Jesus on the big screen, but it's probably the last memorable time anyone's played yeah. Jesus on the big screen. Well, he was in that real good movie, um, the one where he gets revenge, that famous revenge flick. Oh, man. I can't remember the name of it. The Jim Caviezel's in. Ah, oh, you got to remember this movie. Oh, Famous revenge flick. That only narrows it down to a couple hundred thousand. The Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, that's a great movie. I love that movie. Yeah, I love that movie, too. Yeah. Oh, it's based on a book. Yeah. Yeah, I love The Count of Monte Cristo. It's Fantastic a great, film. great flick. I own it on DVD. So do I. And it's good, man. I've gotten rid of a lot of my DVDs over the years. <laughs> Kept that one. that one. That's awesome. Contra movie. It's got to happen. Do you think Konami it, would be on board with that? Probably not. The pachinko machine. <laughs> well, they could make a move like a Street Fighter the movie, the arcade game came out, so they could come out with Contra the movie, the arcade. So you're talking game, about Contra the movie, the, the, the pa- game, the, the pachinko. pachinko. Right, exactly. Yeah. Hit the lever. <laughs> I could see a YouTube commercial for that. It'd be awesome. It would be a uh, um it would be what is this place? 
and then it'd just be like the sound of balls ringing as they run down the pass. <laughs> and if the ball's going the right place, keep your eyes peeled. Exactly. Speaking of video games, did you see um, my stack of records that I have there now? Well, I mean, I see it every week, but you recently informed me that you took them out of the sleeves and boxes. Yeah, yeah. Because um, there's no space on your shelf for both the sleeves and boxes and the records. Yeah, so I, uh, I'm i a, a video game soundtrack snob now. I only listen to my video game soundtracks on vinyl now. So I got, there's a company called Brave Wave that released the Street Fighter 2 soundtrack. And it's pretty awesome. You saw this. Yeah, it's I got saw it. the, uh, it's got two discs, it's four records in this in this cool box and uh, it's got liner notes and everything. And uh, the first two records are the CPS one. And then the other two records are the CPS two. So it's got both versions of soundtrack and everything. It's got like selected sound effects and things on it. Pretty cool album. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the advantages of listening to music on vinyl, if there are any, or is it purely a aesthetic? Thing? It's just the aesthetics of it. I'm just really super old and I listen, you know, I like, listening to music on records putting the needle on the record and just listening to it that way in this particular case it's completely impractical you're listening to digitally produced and created music dumped on an analog format it's completely impractical okay. and backwards and and stupid is there an advantage to listening to music recorded in a studio like say an album by the rolling stones or whatever well yeah they the, i mean that's why records are coming back right now because like all these like audio files are like the music is a more realistic sound when you hear it when it's on cd or something there's like digital compression no matter what format it is mm-hmm. you know there's all there's going to be this like digital compression you're going to get unless you have like a lossless format a flac file i guess records like pure sound you know you're just hearing exactly what was recorded so there's a benefit there that's what i call music it's not video game soundtracks regular music for for video game soundtracks there's not really a practicality to it to me it's just like cool it's a cool factor for okay. me i just like to do it. So I got those, and then there's another company called Data Discs that's coming out with a bunch of Sega stuff. They came out with Streets of Rage, Streets of Rage 2, Shenmue, Super Hang On. They're coming out with Outrun soon. Doing primarily Sega stuff right now. So yeah, got a bunch of those too. Just a cool thing because I'm rad, you know, the, the right. gaming, gaming FM. So I'm a snob. I'm the biggest snob of game soundtracks there is. I have the vinyl for what I believe is the first video game soundtrack. What? Pac-Man Fever. <laughs> That's awesome. I'll bring it over here and I'll put it with all of Who your... is, uh, who, uh, what's the, Garcia? Some, Buckner and Garcia. Buckner and Garcia, that was it. Who yeah. also did the ending theme for Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, which I think is, I, it's really strange that Disney actually allowed that. Yeah. Because Disney, they usually want to have whoever's popular at the time. Well, I think there's a movie. Rihanna song, like, in the movie. Yeah. Well, there's also... Which uh, dates the movie. Kind of sucks. But. There's also a, uh, a Japanese pop song from one of those idol groups called AKB48. Sugar Rush. It's a Sugar Rush yeah. song. I like that song. It's I like that movie. Little, that's I, a great movie. I hear people bashing that movie, like, all the time. Like, oh, there wasn't enough video game crap in that movie. That's not the fucking point. It's called Wreck-It Ralph. And it's about Wreck-It Ralph. And they didn't give in to, like, I'm sure making the movie. They wanted to make video games the movie. We have access to all these characters. We have all these licenses. Let's go nuts. They resisted the urge to just make video games the movie. And they stuck to their guns and made a competent story about this character. And it's really good. I'm going to agree with you there because how 
long before you just get tired of the psychics. These fucking complainers, you can't make them happy about anything. If you'd have put in a bunch of video game references, then those people would be wanked listening to it. But then there'd be other people that would be like, there's too many video game references in this. It's not its own movie. It's borrowing from the... It's uh, Avatar is Pocahontas with Smurfs. <laughs> you can't make these fuckers happy no, at all. No. I liked Wreck-It Ralph. I have no problem with the movie. The one thing, the one glaring omission, which makes no sense to me considering it's a Disney film, where's Tron? Right. Good point. That's the one thing. I'm like, you got to have Tron in this movie. There are video game arcades that I went to that were defined by that game. Yeah. Like, that was the game. Yeah, yeah. Because it had the glowing control stick. It had the really cool-shaped cabinet, the really unique and interesting graphics that were on the side of the cabinet. The weird control. It wasn't like a joystick and buttons. It was a flight stick. Right. And you had right. a knob to turn. And if you think about this, not only is it an important game in the history of video games, it is also still pretty unique in terms of the landscape of the arcade scene. There aren't any other games that are really like it. There aren't really many games that even use that same control scheme. So it kind of carves its own identity, yep. and it's a Disney property. And yeah, why wasn't it? Why wasn't Tron <laughs> in the movie? I don't. I don't get. The only thing I can think of, it came out after this Tron sequel, yeah, right? Yeah. The only thing I can think of is that they weren't happy with the performance of the second Tron movie, and they just didn't want to reference it because they didn't want they there's, didn't want to mention it. You know, corporations are weird. Yeah, like they that. just make weird. But there's really no. Point. Whether the movie tanked or did well, why not throw them in there? Yeah, Tron the just seems to me to be something a that no should have been. But you know, I'm not going to sit here and be like, Tron wasn't in the movie. Fuck this movie. Tron's an important video game. It should be in the movie, so fuck this movie. No, it's Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, I mean, people, people were like, oh, that dude is supposed to be Smoke from Mortal Kombat, but it's not exactly. Where they didn't get the characters like exactly right. Yeah. It's like, who the fuck cares? It's Who's not the fucking point. cares? Exactly. Oh, Cammy had on leggings. So, I don't. I don't understand. Like, it's, that's going to be your criteria for judging. What yeah, I was just reading. I, I I read like comments about it in in the past. And there's a lot of like subtle nuance in that movie. Like I've seen it like no less than a billion times because my kid, kid my kid, kid loves it, it. So it's yeah. always on. And like it's uh, there's so much in that movie. Like when you look close at the background and you know different uh, different things in the arcade stick out. The dude that runs the arcade, Mister Litwack. Is supposed to be uh, Walter Day from the Twin Galaxies and all that. He, oh, it's really? Like, yeah, he's got the striped shirt on and everything. It's like total, you know, paying homage to to him and everything. Just like, so little shit like that. So dang cool. Plus, uh, all the uh, the voice actors were accurate too. Like the American Ken and Ryu voice actors were used in the movie. The American Sonic the Hedgehog voice actor was used in the movie. Hey, that's a question. Did you go with us to see uh, Fistful of Quarters? In Chicago? No, I think I have the movie laying around. I have it too. But I, yeah. Well, I you brought up Walter Day, so that made me think of Twin Galaxies, yeah, and yeah. he appears in that movie. Yeah. And that's an interesting film, man. Mm-hmm. I wonder who owns the record. I wonder if it's that Asian doctor guy or if one of those two took it back. I haven't seen it. Yeah. I'll watch it after this. Yeah, I, I'd be interested to check it out. I have, there's a lot of good documentaries out there. There's the, the, there's that one, and then there's uh, the Nes- the guy where, where the guy goes on the quest, Nintendo Quest. Goes on the quest to own every NES game. He travels all over the U.S. to own every NES game. I've never seen that one. That sounds yeah. interesting. Uh, there's the. Is uh, it even possible, given like how, how expensive some of those games are? I don't know. What's the one that's really rare? The one that it was only played at like the Nintendo Game Championships or something? Oh, like the that? Uh, the three pack. 
the Nintendo World Championship, the, the three pack. It has what uh, Rad Racer and Mario and another uh, Tetris. Yeah, maybe it, or... it's very rare and it's worth a ton of money yeah. if it's legit. Thousands of dollars or something. Yeah, I mean the ROMs are up everywhere. But... Um, stadium events, which is I believe before the Power Pad. It was world-class track meet for the power pad. Nintendo bought that game. It used to be stadium events or something. Mm-hmm. So that, if you can find stadium events, the pre-Nintendo one, that's like worth tons of money too. That's so. a fascinating idea for a movie guy that just wants to get every NES game. Uh, there's a documentary a friend of mine recommended to me a long time ago. It was about the guy that created Billy Bob, uh, Showbiz Pizza. The Showbiz Boys, Pizza, yeah. Rock Fire Explosion. Yeah. I want to write How that down. I want to see that for sure. <laughs> Yeah, my friend Scott, who listens to our podcast, he said that I should watch it. I just never did. Scott from was... Japan? No. Uh, yeah, Scott from Japan. Yeah. yeah this Scott is a guy, that, uh, a guy that I've met a number of times, but you always think I never met him. So you're always like, my friend Scott from Japan. Like, I know who fucking Scott is. <laughs> oh, have you met him? <laughs> uh, so it's a, a – do- I'm going to write this it's down. It's a documentary Doc- about the Rock of Fire explosion. We'll check that out. I will check that out. I man. need to check it out, too. Um there's the other one about uh, they, they dug up all the E.T. carts. Yeah. You got to check that one out, too. Wait, I'm kind of disappointed that they actually did it because I like the idea that it was just this myth that just you never the myth. really knew. Yeah. yeah, they dug them up. Some of them are still in pretty good shape. And they're like, they auctioned a bunch of them on eBay. Yeah, yeah still that playable. was an interesting postscript. Like, the city was willing to let them do it, but any profits that were going to be made from it had to go to the city. Yeah. So, like, all the eBay auctions and stuff, they got the money for that. But. Fine. They did it. Whatever, you know. you know. Yeah, but you're right. There is, there was like a certain uh, the mystique of it. Is it real or is it not real? Like I wish they would have never. It's real. Here they are. Now it's like, well, we there, don't have that anymore. There are some things that, even though I'm glad we're discovering the truth behind them, even though we're actually seeing the advancement, like Shenmue Three. Yeah, it was always like the ultimate vaporware, right? And not anymore. <laughs> we're getting it. Yeah, now it's coming. You know, it's, it's like, always yeah. that game that everyone asked for, and now it's coming. Before it's, that, it was uh, Street Fighter Three. <laughs> nice good one and the 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 et cart thing was another one of those like great video game mysteries it was one of those nerd mysteries that i just really enjoyed there were other games in there too there wasn't oh, just yeah. et there was like a number of other i couldn't cite them off the top of my head but i know there's other ones in there that's another fascinating thing there you might be able to find some documentaries on the making of that game the guy that made it is always willing to talk about it. Yeah. And well, the circumstances under which he had to create the game in six were, weeks. Yeah. Fuck, you make a game in six weeks. Yeah, exactly. You know? With that hardware. Yeah. Fuck. I honestly don't think the game is as bad as everyone says it is. I'm not going to say it's fun, but it's not a horrible, horrible game. I've played worse Atari 2600 games for sure. I'm, tr- I'm trying to. No, I don't agree. It's crap. I'm trying to like think of like because I remember playing it. You know, you find all the little M and M's and find them. Like, Seriously, yeah. like I thought the Raiders of the Lost Ark game was, I was worse. Oh, that's so funny! I was just about to say that right before you did. I'm like Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, what about that one? I, I think it was ambitious because it used both controllers. Yeah, and it had that interesting black market that you had to find the secret entrance to. Yeah, we had the inventory system and everything. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's funny was- now when you play that. Like, do you know how to finish it now? I don't know how to finish it. Actually, no. I have found the arc. Yeah. It takes like five minutes yeah. or less. It's like a five-minute game. But it's the quest, figuring out how to do it. You know about the rumor of like uh, the Yar? Yeah. I've never seen. Uh, no, I mean. I yeah. never was able to get the Yar to appear. Neither did I. 
I think it's bullshit. I'm sure I really I, I don't know. I, I it's not something that I lose sleep over, but it's like always one of those things like, man, I wish I could have gotten that. Yeah. I remember that though. I remember being like, oh, I wonder, you know, cuz I like I finished the game, but then it's like like an achievement almost. Yeah. At, you know, back then it's like, oh, I wonder if I could get that thing to appear. But yeah. I remember for a long time there was talk that Leonardo DiCaprio was going to do a movie about Nolan Bushnell. And really? I wish they would have because I would have liked to have seen it. That's a weird rumor to hear. <laughs> yeah, no yeah well, apparently um, Seth Rogen is involved with a movie about the console wars, Nintendo versus Sega. That's well, there's too. a book. Oh, okay. I yeah, I know book. the book, but I, I... They've been attached to this project for a long time, a movie about the console wars. There was also that rumor about who was the Hollywood famous dude that was going to be, like, he was making the Robotech movie. Oh, I don't know who the guy was. Was it DiCaprio? Was he involved with it? I want to say DiCaprio. DiCaprio's involved with everything now. Yeah, weird. Yeah, I want to say they, they, his name was attached to it, or somebody's name was attached to it. Keanu, I don't know. Yeah. Don't Why know. am I thinking Toby Maguire for some reason? Maybe oh, it was maybe it was Toby. I don't know. Live action Robotech. I was like, don't do it. You can't encapsulate that story into a movie. Well, they would have done it anyway. Do a Robotech movie, but you got to find a studio that'll commit to, like, we want to make three of these. Justin Macross Saga. Three movies. That's still tough, man. There's so much that would be missing. In three movies? I, don't, I think they could do a trilogy and nail it. They could do 27 episodes. They'd have to cover nine mo- nine episodes per movie, roughly. Yeah. There's some filler in there. They could yeah. take it out. Yes, Rick, only a dream. Rick- <laughs> exactly. Take that out. You don't need the dream scene. You don't need a, the magic bicycle, the flying magic bicycle in the movie. You can cut that. Well, what would be the key issues that you'd have to have in? Okay, after the origin. Yeah. Like the first movie. Which we already discussed takes like how many episodes to set up, you know? It's four episodes to set it up. Like, (laughs) But the thing is, the origin would have to be the first movie. The whole first movie would have to be that. Yeah. And then the second movie would be like tracking Min May's rise to pop stardom and Rick's involvement with the military. Max and Miria. I think you'd have to end the second movie with Roy getting killed. Yeah. And also, maybe you could mix it where it's like Roy getting killed and Minmay getting captured like they did in the theatrical release. Ended on that dark you, note. Oh, the theatrical... Uh, the the, the, the Macross. Macross, the motion... Uh, do you remember love? A man and a woman. They must be protoculture. <laughs> must be protoculture. Bullshit. Oh, no, that was Macross, too. Sorry. Yeah. You don't know the first thing about journalism. <laughs> <laughs> so goddamn stupid. Um, I hated that dude. I didn't like it. Macross Maybe because it was dubbed. I don't know. It was the first anime that was dubbed in a quote-unquote serious fashion to be released over here, yeah. I believe. It was a very early one. I mean, we'd seen dubs before. Like, Robotech technically is a dub. Yeah. But it was also adapted and syndicated. And this was the first time that I can recall that we'd gotten a pure version of the Japanese release with... English With voices. Dubbing, yeah. It was an early, it was a pioneer in that. And did U.S. renditions do it or U.S. manga core? I don't remember. Anyway. I don't know. Uh, I can't remember. But I know f- I didn't like it. The third movie would have to be the Zentradi coming to destroy the earth and they have to fight and Min May's going to sing. Yeah. Like that, and then have- they're going to show him a baby. Like if you watch Do You Remember Love? Mm-hmm. It's not a bad distillation of the key elements of the story. If you can get past the bad dubbing, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I have it subtitled. So. Oh, I'd like to see that. That'd yeah. be cool. It's pretty This cool. is great animation, man. I remember back then. This is that classic 80s hand-drawn anime. I you miss it. Yeah. The character designs look so different in anime now than they did back then. Yeah. They looked so much better back then. Well, we were talking about that with, uh, like, Dragon Ball Super, how, like, they've introduced, like, these characters, like, these lanky, skinny 
undefined characters, yeah. but kept the character designs of the other characters classic. For them. So, like, when Vegeta is up against Kaba, Kaba is, like, this scrawny, no muscle definition whatsoever. Looks very modern anime character. Up against Vegeta, who's, like, muscular, defined, very classic animation. And yeah. that clash of the two styles we, we thought was, was pretty cool. But you just don't get that anymore. No, Sad. it's it's changed. It's different. Um, the anime industry is struggling to survive, and they're doing what they can to make their money. I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the choices they're making, but yeah, I watched a video recently where this guy had said, you know, they're they're not all exactly the same. All of anime is not exactly the same. You can't criticize it unless you watch it. Mm. But to me, looking at a good show. With the cute girl tropes in it and the school girl tropes in it, looking if if I have to glean enjoyment from that, then that already tells me that variety is dead anyway. <laughs> like if I have to watch this, okay, oh this is a good show with things I hate in it. No, I don't want to do that. No, I'd rather no. I'd rather they push boundaries again, but money's not there. So. I just remember uh, like you showing me Slam Dunk. And being like blown away, and what a weird anime! Like yeah. you know, like a sports anime. Who'd have thought either one of us would have liked a sports anime? <laughs> but it's because the characters are so cool. Yeah, they're so much fun. Yeah, and they're very unconventional looking. And that anime, yeah, that the that's a, the character designs like just so refined. Yeah. This didn't look like other anime at the in, time. In fairness, Takahiko Inoue, who is the creator of it, he he did the the manga that was based on the man is a genius. Mm. He did that. He did Vagabond, which is a uh, manga. It, there's no anime for it yet, but it's a manga adaptation of Musashi, mm. and it's brilliant. Yeah. It's probably the best thing manga wise I've ever read. I would say that it's probably better than Berserk. In terms of its pacing, in terms of structure, in terms of the way its characters evolve, uh, Berserk is just something that's closer to my heart. Now, this is to say that Berserk is bad compared to it. It's really close. I just think that whereas I think Berserk is a really great dark fantasy adventure, I think that Vagabond is art. Mm. Like it, it, it comes off as art. We all know the famous story about. Well, we don't all know, but some of many of us know that the story about Miyamoto Musashi killing a hundred men in Ichijoji Temple. Well, that's always been this sort of romanticized feat of strength and skill mm. that has been celebrated. Oh, this is how good this guy is! I've killed sixty-six men in duels and countless hundreds more in other battles. This is one of the famous quotes that Musashi used to say. It wasn't really eighty-eight of them. They just call them the crazy eighty-eights. <laughs> so. You derailed me. So uh, That's what I do. In Vagabond, of course, they interpret that scene. Yeah. And the, the backstory for this is that Musashi has been routinely trouncing all of the masters of this martial arts school called the Yoshioka School. They were a highly regarded school. And historically, Musashi would travel around the land and he'd defeat the headmasters, right. the, the senseis of these schools. And the, the the folklore is that he would take the wooden placard right. of the school and carry it around as like a token that he had defeated them. Well, his, I don't know how much of that is true, but historically, he did get into a feud with the Oshiokas, okay. and there was an ambush at this temple where they where they said, "Let's have a duel at this temple," and it turned out to be an ambush. All we know is he survived and he killed a lot of people. Sure, but over time, it's he's become the hundred man slayer, like the whole hundred man killer. That's a Musashi thing. Yeah. 
and uh, it's folklore deriving from the truth of the events. Well, so the Yoshiokas, they gather all these fighters to try to kill Musashi, and he, and he kills them all, and he survives. The way that Vagabond handles the story is as he's fighting them, there will be like four pages dedicated to the next person he's going to kill. <laughs> and this guy's like, I can kill Musashi, and then with the money I'm going to make, I'll be able to retire – and me, I can finally be with my wife, or I can finally go home and see my son, or maybe some samurai will, or some daimyo will hire me to be their instructor. Like, and then just, <laughs> and then they're dying. So like, you're reading these people's lives and their ambitions and their hopes. And sometimes they're afraid of Musashi, but they're doing it. Right. Sometimes they're aggressive and they hate him. Sometimes they're like, it's just a job. But you're getting the view of all of these people as he's killing them, and. That's What's, such an important element of storytelling, man. Well, what I, here's the reason why this is so important and interesting in this particular case. Because this is an event that traditionally we have celebrated as an audience reading that story. Look how awesome Musashi right. is. He can survive an ambush from 100 people and kill them all. But in Vagabond, the take is he's extinguishing dreams. Mm-hmm. He's killing the hopes and ambitions and aspirations of these people. As the fight goes on and on, as opposed to other interpretations of that fight, which I've read in other venues, when I'm reading it in Vagabond, I'm like, stop, dude. Stop. You're a monster. You're wrecking all these lives. All of these lives are being cut short by you. Just stop. Just run away, man. But Just that's, leave. But that's good, man. That's well, that's well. You my, feel something. Right. <laughs> and Musashi eventually comes around to saying, like, this was no accomplishment. Yeah. What's that was not a feat. Yeah. I was an animal struggling to survive. I wasn't a fighter uh, learning anything from the duel. I was just a savage beast. And it's like Musashi wants to master that. He wants to take control of that. He wants to become something more than just a savage beast and a survivor and a killer. You know, He wants to ascend to something higher. So even he eventually comes around and acknowledges that what he did was nothing of value. Mm. And I find that a very interesting interpretation of that storyline. But that's Takahiko Inui. That's the guy that created Slam Dunk. Yep, that's something, you know? man. And he's really good at understanding the motivations of characters. Like Sakuragi and Rukawa might as well be Goku and Vegeta. <laughs> right. But reversed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in Slam Dunk, the Vegeta character is the better one. Yeah. And the Sakuragi character is the one that's striving to reach him. You could argue Rukawa's Goku, but the thing is – Sakuragi acts – well, Sakuragi is kind of like a composite of Goku and Vegeta, right? Mm. He's jealous. He gets angry. But he's also kind of this goofball. So he's kind of like a composite of the two characters. But the whole rival thing is – it's, it's an old story in yeah. Japanese yeah. fiction. Yeah. But that's Takehiko Inui. He just – he understands characters. He can get a guy like Ray to care about – basketball mm-hmm. in so much as that story is concerned. It's not like you're going to read Slam Dunk and be like, I got to watch the NBA now. Right. <laughs> but in terms of that story, I you're, it. you're compelled by basketball because basketball is a metaphor for a character growing yeah. and becoming more than what he was. At the start, it's all about impressing a girl. By the end, he finds himself on the court. Yeah, he actually and, cares. You know, at the start, when, he, when they're losing games, he's upset because they lost. But as the storyline goes on, Winning isn't necessarily about just getting that W. It's about how did I become a, 
a stronger person right. as a result? How did acquiring basketball skills help me advance as a person? By the end of the story, he's the best player on the team. He surpassed Rukawa. Rukawa is the decent is a great scorer and a decent defender, but Sagaraki does everything. Yeah. He can score, he can defend, he can rebound, he can pass. He just becomes the best, most well-rounded player on the team. That's Japanese, too. Think about like Street Fighter 2V, Ryu, like acquiring skills from everybody to defeat Bison at the end. Yeah. Even Goku, you could argue, is like learning from everyone around them and becoming better. That's what Sakuragi becomes. He, yeah. he like absorbs everybody's lessons, and he becomes the consummate player. Right. By the end, he's the only reason they can even win that game at the end. It's a shame that didn't catch on in the U.S., you know? It's just like, I would like to have seen it. Do like Dragon Ball did, you know, do well over here, but might be too Japanese of a story. I, I can tell you this. I love the manga. I couldn't stop reading it when they adapted. Yeah, it. Yeah, that's the only thing. Course. I've never seen the end. Like I saw like you gave me like a few seasons. I don't remember how much you gave me, but I, I blew through all of it. And yeah. I never. Well, the anime doesn't end like the manga does. The mm. anime ends with like an all star game where like Shohoku plays all of the strongest players from all the other teams. It's a completely different ending because they decide to wrap it up. Even though it was a phenomenon in Japan, it yeah. was a sensation. Yeah. There was as much advertisement for Slam Dunk as there was for Dragon Ball at one point. I remember watching Dragon Ball in raw Japanese and seeing Slam Dunk commercials yeah. all the time. It was a big deal. Yeah. But what ended up happening is uh, he ended the manga. It was The ending was not supposed to be a permanent ending. Mm. Um, it ended with Sakuragi getting injured, and the fear was that he wouldn't be able to play basketball anymore. The last game in the manga is not uh, the championship. It's just the next game. But the thing is they play what everyone considers to be far and away the strongest team in the tournament, mm. and they win. And ironically enough, they win with Sakuragi shooting a jumper. No. The other team is a better team, okay? There's no question they outclass Shohoku in almost every way. But Sakuragi is the one guy they don't have an answer for. He gets injured halfway through the game, and he can't play. So at that point, that's when Sano, who is that team, they start to come back. And they actually run up the score and get up like over 20 points mm. on Shohoku. But then Sakuragi, who is injured, he comes back into the game. And he helps them chip away at that lead until eventually they win. And it ends with this – like the whole last chapter, there's no dialogue. Mm. It's just a frame by frame. It's almost like a movie layout. Okay, so what happens is Sano scores with like a few seconds left. Right. And they're up. The second they score – the rest of Shohoku is like, what are we going to do now? Sakuragi is already running down to the other end of the court. <laughs> they inbound the ball, and the whole last chapter is just this frame-by-frame -frame sequence. It's like, like I said, it's like a movie storyboard of them getting the ball, and Shohoku is completely harassed. Like, they can't get the ball out of the backcourt. Rukawa gets the ball, but he's being run down by the other team's best player. Mm. He sees Sakuragi standing there in the blocks, holding his hands out, and he's, like, looking at Rukawa. And you know Rukawa and Sakuragi, they can't stand each other. Rukawa passes the ball to Sakuragi, and as time runs out, he shoots the jumper, and it goes in. Mm. Basketball fundamental, which is how you know Sakuragi has evolved to a point beyond the rest of the players on the team. Yeah. He has come from being the worst player on the team to being the best player on the team, not because – of his natural talent, but because of his desire to learn how to properly play. He has grown spiritually as a person by the end of it. Yeah. So, of course, he nails the jumper. They win as time expires. But the next scene is like there's this group picture 
of the team. And the caption is like, they were so tired from coming back to defeat Sano that they were completely crushed and knocked out of the tournament in the next game. And then it shows you that's Akage, the center. That's his last year playing. Mm. And that's Kogure, who is the guy with the glasses. They're seniors. They're going to be seniors. They have to leave the team because they have to start studying for college because, you know, in Japan, you go to college, you study, you pass, you know, you're going to get a job. Like, so they have to give up the basketball. So then of course, uh, You've got some of the other characters on the team, and they're taking over. And everyone's like, you know, where's Sakuragi? Well, Rukawa's trying out for the Japanese national basketball team. That's mm-hmm. what he's getting ready for. Okay. And Sakuragi is in a hospital. He's, like, recovering from his injuries. He's, like, rehabbing. And everyone's like, is he going to come back? We don't know what's going to happen. And there's this scene where Sakuragi's sitting on the beach, and Rukawa's running by in his tracksuit. And he opens up his shirt, and it says Japan. <laughs> Actually, the... There was a fear that Rukawa was going to go to America and play for a college in America because he was that good. Mm. But in the end, he decided to stay home and play in Japan. And the sense that you get, it's not because he wanted to go and learn to improve his game. It's because now – like they don't say it, but you know it's because now he acknowledges, even though he'll never admit it, Sakuragi's become better than him. Mm -hmm. And if he goes to America – He'll never get to compete against Sakuragi the way he wants to again. Right. Rukawa will always be the flashier player. He'll be the Michael Jordan, but Sakuragi is the more rounded player who's better at everything. Yeah. Everyone's wondering how Sakuragi's doing. And it's like, how's your rehab going? And when he sees Rukawa, it's like, yeah, you know he's going to be fine. You know he's <laughs> going to play basketball again. There's no way this character would come all this far and experience all this growth and then not play basketball again. Well, Inoue was supposed to continue that story. But he said, I couldn't think of a better ending than that. Yeah. <laughs> so why continue it if I can't come yeah. up with a better way to conclude the story? No pressure from the studio. Right. Well, but. apparently he was like, I don't really want to tell that story, which tells you why the guy's a consummate artist. Right. He of course, Toriyama's an artist too, but. But he gave in to the uh, pressure from the I studio. Think, th- I think Dragon Ball is too lucrative of a property, whereas Slam Dunk was lucrative, but. I don't in think Japan. it was in Japan. I don't think it was the money making juggernaut that Jar- Dragon Ball was. Yeah. Anyway. How, did, well, how the hell did someday we're going to put up a flow chart and figure out, put, connect the dots, how we got here? Got an Best anime, of, oh, Robotech movie. Yeah. That's and then we got on the Robotech. Then got the, and yeah. They don't people don't draw like that anymore and all that yeah. stuff. So. Anime. Yeah. So we, uh, yeah, we. I know we lost a couple listeners who don't like anime. Cool. Well, Sorry, man. Well, I mean, he's not completely wrong. Most of it's not good anyway. <laughs> that's true. But I think well, he... the stuff we were into. Well, that's why you know that's why we do this. It's like we can talk about this stuff, and maybe somebody younger who's like, eh, "Anime is shit." Like, well, not so fast. Yeah. There's some stuff. There is some good stuff. You know, I would a lot say of good stuff from back in the day. Macross, yeah. Mobile Suit Gundam, yeah. Dragon Ball, mm-hmm. Berserk. Mm-hmm. I would say Neon Genesis Evangelion, but for me, that was the start of the end. Ray Ayanami was introduced. She was kind of like the template Moe girl. Right. That, you know, people were like, oh, yeah. I could be with a girl like Ray. Yeah. Sure. If you like psychopaths that want to ruin the world. Yeah. Although I understand the character is more nuanced and complex than that. So get off my nuts, internet. <laughs> Even the creator of Evangelion has admitted that he feels like he's contributed to the decline of anime with the introduction of the Moe stereotypes, you know, like the Asuka. He apologized. Well, I'm sorry for ruining anime. In Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, which is a manga that's sort of like a retelling of the original story done by the original art director of the anime. Oh, cool. 
uh, Hideaki Anno, who's the creator of Evangelion, was invited to write something for Mobile Suit Gundam, for, for one of those volumes. And in one of those volumes, he talks about what an influence Gundam was on him and how important of an anime he thinks that it is. Yeah. And in that, he says, you know, he, he basically says something along the lines of, I understand why we don't get more things like Mobile Suit Gundam. And I feel bad that I've contributed to that. Mm. Like it was a very interesting thing for him to say. I feel bad that I've contributed to the decline of what I consider to be good anime. Evangelion's a good series. Everyone should watch it <clears> once. You know who else apologized? I just read a, this story recently. The writer of the uh, American live-action Dragon Ball movie, Dragon Ball Evolution. No, really? The guy, yeah, who wrote it apologized. He's like, I'm sorry. I was just trying to make a buck. I didn't really care about Dragon Ball. Over the years, I've gotten all your hate mail and you know i kind of realize my mistake now many years later and i'm i'm sorry it's interesting that you bring that up because that guy i don't think let me put it this way he is part or was part of a industry that has no respect for the weight and gravity of pop culture it was something to be mined he, he Green was papers, probably like dude. Boy, that's a video we should link someday. <laughs> it's a shame because yeah. we need more people that are going to respect the integrity of the original property. I was in the comic store yesterday and I was talking with a gentleman who was like, I can't stand that they made Thor a woman. And I don't like that the Falcon is Captain America now. Yeah. And he says, I grew up reading comics and I just liked what I liked. And they've just changed it and they've added all this stuff into it that for whatever reason, to appeal to people that don't even care about this stuff at the end of the day. And I'm not necessarily sure I agree with that they don't care. But in order to just appeal to a market, they've co-opted things and they've changed things because they think that's what people want. When I say that's what people want, what I mean is what's going to make them money. It's not about making the story or the characters or the comic better. It's about sensationalizing something and making money. It's controversial. Right. Uh, I feel that the Dragon Ball movie is, while not controversial necessarily, it's simply an attempt to cash in. I've seen live-action Dragon Ball be good. I can probably cite two different fan films that I think are pretty excellent. Crap. I think that the uh, epic rap battles between (laughs) Goku and Superman was a more accurate representation (laughs) of Goku than that. But it's just a shame that Toriyama, probably because Bandai Namco won't let him, or Bandai in this case yeah, won't yeah. let him, yeah. doesn't step up and say, hey, you can't do this. Yeah. On the other hand, Toriyama, for all of his gifts, seems very much to be a company guy. Yeah. Like he's never going to take a stance against his employees. He's never going to bite the hand that feeds him. He made two sagas beyond Frieza when he wanted to quit. He certainly feels a degree of loyalty to the people that have very, helped him get to where he is. Very Japanese work ethic. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, even guys like Kentaro Miura, who did Berserk, who Berserk is not at all a traditional Japanese story. I yeah. think it's got a lot of traditional Japanese ideas in it. It's not very marketable because of how violent and how adult it is. But I bet, you know, even he may chafe at some of the attempts to commercialize Berserk, but I've never heard him speak out against it. Yeah. Although Berserk's commercialization is a lot less severe than it could because be. Because it's Berserk. I think it would be difficult to mine that yeah. for anything. But the point is, like, even the both of the animes are still watered-down versions of the true story. 
but I've never heard him speak out against them or say these are awful. And it's like I, I think it's just a very and you know I'm, I'm a gaijin, so but I think it's just a very um, it's a very Japanese thing to not openly discredit the people that gave you the opportunity to get where you are, yeah. which is why guys like Shinji Mikami and um, the um, fucking Mega Man creator. Uh, Keiji Inafune, yeah. which is why when they speak out, or uh, Hideki Kamiya, creator of Devil May Cry, when they yeah. speak out, I'm like, whoa, these guys are real renegades. Yeah. They're like, they're not afraid to say what they feel. Yeah. That is not the way they do business over there. Yeah. But I respect the fact that they're willing to do it. Yeah. Those guys could have still been working for Capcom in its heyday, you know, Kamiya, Mikami, Inafune, when that company was still making money. Right. They could have just shut their mouths and. Or found a more diplomatic way to say what they wanted to say, <laughs> right. but they didn't. They spoke their minds, and granted, they may not be exactly where they want to be right now, but maybe they are where they want to be right now. Yeah. Speaking of Inafune, I guess Mighty Number no. Nine actually has a release date. Yeah, now. we'll see, right? <laughs> well, <it laughs> the went, day go- before, oh, it went gold. <laughs> okay, so so there, it's it's coming out. Yeah, then. it's coming out in June, I guess. Wow. We'll I don't see. know that I care anymore. No, yeah, it's like, well, what if you like I didn't donate to the Kickstarter? What if you had? You'd be like, oh my god. Well, apparently, uh, there was a lot of shenanigans about the Kickstarter. Yeah, there's a lot of hijinks going on there. But I'm not going to pretend that I know that whole story. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just remember like waiting for that goddamn blinking light wind to show up after I pitched into that Kickstarter. I'm like, where is this damn thing? I think mine took me six months. Yeah. And you're far, you know, way after the Kickstarter. You were like way, yeah. way out there. That was a botched from the start, man. Typical story here about Kickstarter. Like every, they're like very vocal at the beginning and they're like, oh, it's going great. Here's the production. You know, we're showing you pictures of everything we're doing and we're all the time. And then as they get closer, like fewer updates, less, uh, more people asking questions and less answers being heard. And then, just complete silence. Then the next thing you know, it's a plastic case with a graphics card in it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fucking awesome. So, yeah, I, I think that what's going to happen at this point is Mighty Number no. 9 is going to come out, and this is just a gut feeling. It's going to be underwhelming. Like, it's going to be a good game, but I think people are going to be like, man, we waited. Oh, this was what all the hullabaloo was about. Well, I've read reviews of, like, the, um, you know, the beta version and stuff, and people are like, it's okay. No. Yeah, whatever. But that's, you know, that wasn't the gold version. I don't know what they've. Have they changed anything? Have they made that big of a drastic? You Fuck know, if I know. I stopped yeah, I caring about it a long time ago. Yeah, I like I bet you it's going to come out and people are going to look at Shovel Knight more favorably. Like yeah. when it's all said and done. Well, because Shovel Knight's got that eight bit look to it. Although um, Bloodstain's not going to be like a, you know in any particular style. It's got its own kind of style. But Mighty Number no. Nine's the same way. It's like three D, and you know, I don't know a game like that. I kind of felt like it would have played better like as a sixteen bit style pixel. Than in 3D, I don't know. That's just me, but we'll see with Bloodstained. Maybe it'll be better. I don't know anymore because, like, you know, when you first hear about stuff, you're like, "Oh my God, the Mega Man creators making this game!" And then look what happened. We could be in the same place in a year from now when Bloodstained's close to release. We'd be like, "What the fuck happened?" You know, your hope with Bloodstained is that Igarashi saw the debacle that ended up becoming <laughs> Mighty Number no. Nine and be like, "We can't allow yeah. this to happen." Yeah. Because if it goes the same way. Nobody's going to kickstart anything else from Igarashi. And that would be a shame because the man is a gifted creator. And yeah. we, clearly the positive response to Bloodstain is proof that we want Metroidvania games. Yeah, right. And we're willing to pay for those games. Plus that cowboy hat. No. How can you argue with that cowboy hat? I wouldn't. You see, you see, yeah, I think we watched it together, yeah. that Mega 64. Mm-hmm. 
where he came in. Well, he also wore it during the Kickstarter too, like right. the video. So right. I wouldn't fuck. I wouldn't fuck with that cowboy hat. No. Well, he came in. He was in that Mega sixty four video where he yep. was whipping Dracula. <laughs> so stupid, but funny. I don't know how they get those people, man. They had Kojima in that one where they were sneaking around doing Metal Gear, and Kojima was with them. I like how they always revisit that same story with different creators and stuff. <laughs> right. They have Miyamoto, too. Yeah. They were jumping around like Mario and Luigi, That's the two right. dudes. They come around a corner, and there's Miyamoto standing there, and they're just like, uh, uh, uh. And then like the the third dude comes out as Link and sees him, and he's like, Rrr, and like goes back. <laughs> Did you see the magazines over there? A uh, little player. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about it when we first heard about it yeah i have a couple of th- first of all what are your thoughts about it i think it's great uh if you don't know little player is a magazine and it's by uh, martin alessi who used to be uh, egm good buddy of mine uh he was on the review crew of egm he was this uh, senior editor i don't remember what his title yeah, he was, was a pretty important guy was... with egm in its early days like yeah i mentioned that i know a number of the egm crew and martin alessi's name is always one of the first ones that comes up yeah yeah, I mean, I've met him a number of times. Yeah. I wouldn't say I quote-unquote know him, but mm. if we sat down in a room together, we could have a conversation about video games. Sure. So, uh, Well, I mean, I went to, uh, like, kindergarten with him. You know, I've known him, like, really long time. Yeah. Uh, and that's how, you know, I ended up getting involved in EGM. But uh, he now is making this magazine called Little Player. Uh, it's a video game magazine geared at uh, kids. What's the age group? It says on there says uh, it's like 7, 7 to 12 or 7 to 11 or something like that. I don't know. 7 to 12. So uh, basically it's like imagine if there was uh, EGM, but it was geared at kids. And it's got like the same thing. It's got like the review crew in it or it's got like a, a form of the review crew. It's got fact files. Now, now we need to specify when we say EGM, we're not talking about what the magazine turned into when <laughs> Ziff Davis got their hands on it. You're going to have to go back to like the first – how many years would you say? Like the first uh, 90s, years? 90s, late you're, 80s, uh, up to like 94, maybe. You're going to have to go back to that period and look at some of those issues to understand the layout. Die Hard Game Fan was another magazine that was like that, but they took the template of what EGM did and they just they sprinkled in more graphics and more busyness on the page. Yeah, right. I'm not going to say I liked it more than EGM because I didn't. I mm-hmm. thought EGM's presentation was very clean, but I, I do like the – pioneer spirit of what these magazines look like this looks like classic old egm but with larger print and bigger pictures because it's for kids yeah right exactly uh, but yeah, just, when you just page through it, you're like, oh my god, am I looking at an issue of EGM from like 1992? It's like it looks totally like that. And it's got the, like the review crew, but the review crew is like uh, there's three dudes that are like adults, and then there'll be three kids. So any game review is reviewed by an adult, and then also by a kid. I think that's really cool. I like that. It's one of the things that makes this a very interesting proposition. Is yeah. if you're going to make a video game magazine geared towards kids. I think kids will like that kids are reviewing it. Yeah, and no no ads. So like Yeah, you know. that's great that they do it no ad free. But here's the thing, like like I was talking about before like with the freemium gaming, like on the iPad, my kid playing those games and then they show her an ad for like Call of Duty or something then you know how much that pisses me off. The same thing could happen to a magazine like this where, you know, in in order to make money the uh, publisher could be like, well, they're going to let them put this ad in anyway cuz it's going to make me money, it's going to keep the magazine going. But He's not doing that. You know, he's just like, I'm going to keep the content clean and simple. Is it a good idea 
to come out with a print magazine in this day and age? That's the question. I would say no. It's a terrible idea. But there's nothing else like this out there. I kind of feel like this is really important. It's something that the world needs. Think about when you were a kid and like you would get something in the mail that was for you. That was awesome. When, when you'd get like something that, oh my God, it's addressed to me and it's for me. That would happen to me with like Transformers stuff. I'd send away for figures that you could only get like from cereal boxes. Yeah. I did, stuff I did like a lot that. of G.I. Joe special orders that way. But yeah. I also subscribed to a lot of Marvel comics in the day. So I would get comic books mailed to my door. There you go. They would always arrive damaged and shit, but, like, but they came in these brown paper sleeves, yeah. and you slid the comic out of the sleeve, and then you read it. Like It wasn't really the most efficient way to send you a comic, but you got to remember, back then, comics weren't really made to be valuable collector's items. They were, they were made to be just read. Right. They were throwaway entertainment. Yeah. It was before Although eBay. I kept all mine. Yeah. I loved getting that stuff in the mail. I love getting things in the mail today. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's true. Shit. Even a rag like Game Informer, yeah. I love seeing it because it's like, oh, cool. This is something new for me. I get to flip through the pages. And every once in a while, there's a good article in there. I mean, Game Informer is to GameStop what Nintendo Power was to sure. Nintendo. Yeah. It's just, it's a big advertisement for the parent company, but yeah. you still like receiving it. What are its chances? Uh, well, I'm going to be honest. I don't think its chances are very good. Yeah. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Because I like the magazine. I like the presentation. Mm. I love the pioneer spirit of it. I love the nostalgia factor. And um, I love the retro feel of it. Mm. I think those are really great things. But are they things that I think are great because they're a way to create a healthy publishing venture? Or are they things that are great because I'm an old man now and I like seeing things from my youth and my early adulthood being distributed again mm. because the industry has changed so much from what it used to be. Yeah. Just the way in which we consume our information about video game news now. I like how earnest it is. I love the fact that it appears to be something that was put together with love and care. Yeah. It's a quality production. Yeah. And if I had a kid, I would want to share this with my kid. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. But – we live in an age where video game news is available at the click of your mouse. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many children really care about video game news. Yeah. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, I can't disagree with anything you said. Um, and I have, I've discussed this directly with Martin, you know, because he asked for my honest opinion. I gave it to him. And I said, you know, kind of a lot of the same things. When I first discussed this with you and I said, man, publishing a video game magazine for adults today is is rough. Is suicide. Yeah. yeah. Kids? Yeah. Was I the first one that brought that to your attention? That like, hey, in this day when print is dying – this is not a good idea. Well, I think we both said it. I, I don't think that, you know, either one of us were jumping the gun on that. I mean, we both, you know, you just, you hear about it and you look at it and you're like, there's just like, this is tough. He's a brave man for putting this together. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's, it's fucking bold. It's difficult because like, I'm so on board with this, but not everybody thinks like I do. You walk into any GameStop at any time and you're going to see some kid up at the counter buying a copy of Call of Duty or some, you know, M-rated game, and the parents typing away on the phone, not paying attention to what they're playing. There's more people like that than there are people like me. And I was just going to – my point was going to dovetail this. But first, when I spoke to you about this and I posited the idea to you that 
print journalism is a bad way to go. Yeah. You looked at me like the way we were talking, it was like it's something you hadn't really considered or something you really hadn't thought about when I said it initially. Yeah. Sure. All that said, there is one thing about this magazine that vomiting video game news out on the internet doesn't do. Kids by themselves are not going to generally expose themselves to something until they receive that from other people, yeah. be it their parents, be it their friends, that kind of thing. You're going to go through it someday. Your daughter is eventually going to start getting interested in things that you didn't introduce her to. Right. And you're going to be like, where would you learn about this? Oh, it's we already have... happening with YouTube. She'll like fire right. up something on YouTube and I'll be like, where, where did this come from? What? Here's the genius of this and what I hope is the thing that really helps it gain some purchase and get a foothold. Parents that interact with their children – and pass things on to their children. Like, these are the things I like. These are the things that I was into. Yeah. These are the things that I enjoyed. And I want to share that with my children. Print journalism for video games is something we grew up with. Yeah. Kids are not going to pick up a magazine of anything and read it. And I'm right. generalizing, but by and large, they're just not going to. Especially not when they can pick up their tablet or go on the computer and get the same information. If they're going to fucking look for the information, most kids are going to go on fucking YouTube and watch like React videos. Yep. And they're going to watch funny things and they're going to watch vines and they're going to watch videos of people falling over and stuff like that. They're going to watch whatever entertains them. Most kids are not going to go on the internet to find things that inform them. But as parents, we or you, I guess you could kind of classify me as a serial parent. Because my nephew is into a lot of the same shit I'm into and it's probably because of the influences I had on it. Parents are going to take this magazine and they're going to share that with their children. And they might be able to pass down to them the value of consuming video game journalism in the right way. Yeah. You know, whereas they may want to eventually start to get involved in consuming video game journalism on their own. The bad side of this is that kids are eventually going to outgrow something like Little Gamer. Right. But you have to hope that the magazine will survive long enough that they'll be able to pass it down to their children and so right. on and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, so I like the idea of this because this is something that video gaming parents can share with their children. Yeah. It allows them to take an active hand in the lives and activities of their children. It's one more way in which they can connect with their kids, and I like that. It's easy to say it's a magazine for kids to learn about video games, but on the other hand, it's also a tool for parents to communicate with their children totally. and teach them something. And I, I really respect that. Yeah. There's something wholesome and right and good about it. Yeah. And we don't have enough of that. You read about video games today, go online and it's like, Oh, Tracer's ass is too prominent. <laughs> Fan complains and blizzard changes. Internet <laughs> explodes. Yeah. Or these video games, do they objectify women? Or is CD project red sexist? And you're just like tired of all the fucking noise. People have to remember that the internet is a place where you can get a lot of great information. It's also the fucking dumping grounds. It's the sewer of human <laughs> yeah. thought. Yeah. You can't read an article like Armika's butt slap is sexist and take that as anything other than a fucking preposterous notion. Yeah. But people read that stuff and they're like, oh, I read something I hadn't considered before. Well, you hadn't considered it before because it wasn't a big deal. Right. But now that somebody has brought it to your attention, you're thinking too much about it. Have your own thoughts. This is something that is just information that parents can share with their kids. Yeah. 
you got to worry about it censoring anything or worry about any of that crap. It's, it's just not like, sensationalizing anything. Yeah. From what I can tell, it's not putting people's thoughts into their heads that weren't there. It's not clickbaity. You know, too many people read clickbait and make the mistake that this is something that they should be thinking about. No, it's not. Clickbait is garbage journalism. It's meant to be read. You have a laugh, and you discard it. And an ad got shown. And yeah, somebody exactly. made some money. And well, that's South Park, right? Mm-hmm. The whole South Park thing. Mm-hmm. All these activist issues, it's all about transforming people's thoughts to make them more susceptible to something. This is a true crusader's venture. Yeah. Because nothing is trying to be gained out of it except a, a good. Yeah. Something positive is trying to be gained out of it. I don't see how anybody's benefiting from this. It's ad free. Yeah. There are no, you know, so it's all about a wholesome side of video game journalism for a younger audience that parents yeah. can share with this them. This is something the world needs. They're, the the uphill battle here is that, yes, it's print. And no, there aren't enough people who think like us and understand why this is a good idea. So, for sure, it's a total uphill battle from here. It's, but It's dangerous, and I want it to succeed. <laughs> and I might even consider subscribing to it even though I don't have any kids just and I have to, no one to share this with, just to support it. Yeah. I think it's a worthy venture. Yeah. You could sit here and say, well, you're just going to like shill for your friend's shit. Well, yeah, because it's, it's good. If he had made something shitty, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't talk about it. I think there's something that Ray can attest to about me, and I think he's become this way too. We don't fucking mince words anymore. All the time that you've known me, I've never been one to hide my opinion yeah, or withhold withhold my tongue. You know, I've always I did been, for a while. We talked about this already. We talk about I, this. I, we don't need to we don't need to cover this. But the point is, you can act as a material witness yeah. when I say that I don't hold my fucking tongue. If I'm upset about something, I tell you. Yeah. And if I don't like something, I speak my mind about it. If I thought that this was just a purely bad idea, I would say it. I might not be caustic about it because I respect what Martin's trying to do, but I might say, ah, this isn't a good idea. This is not a good idea, but it's a, it's the right idea. I'm it's, yeah, it's it's what we need. It's it's needed. It's but it's yeah, it's going to be an uphill battle, and you know, all we can do is what we're doing now. Yeah. Tell some people about it. You know, check it out. He's on you know, you go on Facebook. It's called Little Player Video Game Magazine for Kids. That's what it's called. But he's on I, Facebook. He's on Twitter. He's on everything. I'm not shilling for this because I honestly don't give a fuck if Martin makes a dollar off of this. Yeah, like Martin making money off of this doesn't help really, you. I, well, I mean, honestly, I don't care if Martin loses money on this. But the important thing is that something good is coming out. Yeah, that can be shared between parents and children. I have a friend. He was married for a time, and he had a stepson through that marriage. Mm-hmm. He said to me at one point, I'm going to teach my kid how to play role-playing games. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, why? He's like, what kind of parent would I be if I didn't pass down the values that I thought were important to the kids that I'm raising? Yeah, That's a fucking solid point. Granted, that can also be the way to damnation. I mean, what if you're a racist? My point is that he's consciously thinking about things that he believes have value that he wants to pass down. Yeah. And I think that's what this is. Yeah. Again – if Martin loses his house on this, I'll feel bad because he lost his house. But I don't care if he profits off of this. That's an LLC. I think it'll be all right. No. <laughs> what I think is important is that I think this is a good product that yeah. is desperately needed in an age where we're growing more and more cynical. And video game journalism is not necessarily about what's there. It's about 
creating narratives in order to create attention in order to generate clicks. Mm. It's about business. And I don't feel like little players about business. I feel it's truly about an experience. There aren't enough avenues in this particular milieu that are giving people that experience. Yeah. Video games, in fact, have sort of been demonized as a form of consumable media that parents don't understand or parents can't relate to or that parents need to protect their children from. Didn't Will Smith write a song about that? Parents just don't understand. <laughs> but this is something that's coming out that's actually promoting the good of video games yeah. and how it doesn't have to divide generations, how it can bring generations together. It looks like classic EGM, late 80s, early 90s EGM. You get it in the mail. Cool retro experiences that, you know, you may not understand the value of them, but it's there. Yeah. And notice I didn't say you should all get it. I said I might subscribe to it, even though I don't have a kid I can share this with. I believe in the potential of the product yeah. and what it can become. I'm getting two subscriptions. I'll tell you why I'm going to get two subscriptions, because my kid's three. And while she's a very advanced reader for her age... She's gonna fold the pages and yeah. she's gonna tear she's it. She's gonna up. read it while eating and stuff like that. So when she's older and maybe can appreciate something like this, then God willing, it's still around. Hey, still got the old issues all all mint, you know. But even if it's not still around, think about this. And I was already in my twenties when Nintendo Power was being published. How awesome would it be? to go back one day and crack open a magazine box with mint copies of every issue of Nintendo Power and just sift through it for nostalgia's sake. Yeah. I have the first uh, 50 right on the other side over there. First 50 EGMs? Uh, first 50 EGMs and first 50 uh, Nintendo Powers. I think, that's, I think that's fantastic. It's like every once in a while you're going to want to look through that. Like for some people it's going to be going back and looking at the good old days. It's going to be like, man, I remember how I felt. Yeah. And... I'm glad I'm around now to look at these things again. And, and I've said it before. I've said it before. Never mind the fact that I worked for EGM. I still, while I, before I worked there, while I worked there, and after I worked there, I was still the biggest fanboy of that magazine. You know, I still looked at it as like a nerdy, oh, the new EGM. I have pages that I did in this issue. It doesn't matter. I'm still super excited. You know, and we'd get the issue like two weeks before at the newsstand. So that was like another perk. We're like, oh, let's all pay. You know, we were all super excited. We were like so dirty about it. It's so disappointing to see what ended up happening to that magazine. Yeah. But it, it's a victim of the modern era is exactly what it is. It's just. Yeah, they, I don't, they, I don't ha- know what happened with that. Because if you remember, Ziff came in and wiped everybody out that was there at, from the beginning. And then they eventually, like it went online only. It was like, what was it? OneUp.com or whatever the hell it was. Well, whatever the hell it was. EGM, I don't know. It went online. But then they said, we're going to get rid of the print version, remember? And then Steve Harris stepped in and said, I'm going to buy it back and I'm going to publish EGM. And then it becomes hazy for me. What Yeah, happened? I don't know. I, I don't think it's being published again. I don't yeah. think it's coming out anymore. I mean, again, I don't know. I could be wrong. I think that what it was is if Davis bought it and like, well, we invested in it. We need to find a way to make money off of it. People aren't buying the print version as much anymore. Let's get so rid of it. We need to go with something that is going to recoup our investment on this what is the way in which people are consuming this media nowadays Mm. it's online Mm -hmm. the focus has shifted now youtube is where people go for video game news anymore people aren't going to fucking kotaku anymore people aren't going to fucking polygon anymore nobody trusts those websites anymore (laughs) yeah that's their own fault when it stopped being about reporting news and started being about reporting agendas yeah. about about pushing agendas yep. the bayonetta review is the first one i remember where like the review was low because it 
because in their opinion, it objectified the main character. I'm like, well, what does that have to do with Review the game. game. Tell me what's good about the game. Don't tell me how your social politics. Okay, that's your opinion. If you want to put that in the piece, you're the writer of the article. Sidebar. Don't base the review on it. Review it objectively, man. Exactly. But you're right. That's that's where it started. The argument from these people is that no review can be objective because it comes from you. Well, you can still strive for objectivity. Yeah. The point is you can strive to be as objective as possible. Or if you find the content objectionable to you, recuse yourself from reviewing it. Say, you know what? I can't review this. I'm not reviewing this. I don't agree with this. So now YouTube is the place where people go because on YouTube, you get unfiltered opinion, which means it's also going to be highly subjective. But the point is YouTube, you can consume a number of reviews within five minutes and you can put together your own composite review of of, Mm -hmm. of something based on all those reviews. Never go to Metacritic. Metacritic is horseshit because it boils everything down to a number. Video games can't be boiled down to a number. Nothing can be boiled down to a number. I love going to Rotten Tomatoes, but more because I just like to see what people think about it. I never take a Rotten Tomatoes aggregate, good or bad, as a fact whether or not the movie is good or bad. I have to see it for myself, and I have to read some of the reviews for myself. Now, that's new media. YouTube is where where people go for their video game information now. What ended up happening is the model that Ziff Davis was trying to use for EGM, it quickly went away. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are still some video game websites out there. There are still some that publish really good content. But by and large, they're going to YouTube. Where authenticity, that's what Trump is getting ahead on, right? Authenticity. Where quote-unquote authenticity is what's getting people invested in what's being said. Mm-hmm. Of course, authenticity is like clickbait of the worst kind because you feel like you're getting – an unfiltered opinion, but really people are not thriving off of those unfiltered opinions. Now, you know, guys like Angry Joe, I have nothing against Angry Joe, but people go to him more because of how he reviews a game. The extreme nature. The extreme of the nature of it. Rather than the reviews the, themselves. It's like the review, and this is kind of genius actually. Yeah. It's entertainment as well as information. Yeah. Ziff Davis, when they tried to adapt to the model to try to recoup the investment on their publication, nothing happened. I remember they brought in some famous internet people at the time, like Sean Baby or whatever, and yeah. it's like, well, this isn't EGM anymore. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I remember feeling just very like, I don't give a shit about it. I felt alienated. I was just like, this. I don't even know who this man is for yeah, anymore. This isn't my crew anymore. And that has nothing to do, again, has nothing to do with me working there. It's just like, after I leave, I read the magazine, I get used to the people who write for it, and then now they're all gone, you know? Yeah. Whether they're my friends or not, I don't care about this new group of people. And sadly, if you go on like Wikipedia or anything about EGM, those are the people who Wikipedia has latched onto as like the pioneers of EGM, like Sean Baby and Dan Shu and all these really? people who were involved not. in like the Ziff Davis era. And like they, they everybody were... that was like on there before, like, you know, Martin Alessi, Ed Semrad, all these people that were on there before have been deleted by Wikipedia and really because yeah. to me like it's when Sendai was publishing is when the magazine mattered right yeah nobody else was doing it at that time at the retro video game site that I frequent when EGM comes up nobody talks about the Shot Baby era <laughs> they talk about the the Sendai era yeah and whenever I tell people that I am familiar with I'm acquainted with or friends with the number of people that worked on it they're like oh that's fucking awesome yeah Nobody ever brings up fucking Sean Baby or Dan Shu. Nobody likes those guys. <laughs> well, somebody does. Younger people. Nobody probably. I know. Yeah, well, exactly, but we know. If you mention Sean Baby to anybody now, does anyone even know who he was? 
Not to anybody. Anybody? I know, but yeah, I don't know. No? But anyway, I guess no one really knows who Martin Alessi is either. But but I guess the difference is EGM is a product of a retro era. Yeah. So the people that are going to remember it the most fondly are the people that have affection for that retro time period. When the Sean Babies and the Dan Shoes came along, EGM was just a run-of-the-mill video game yeah. publication. By that time, there were other publications out there, and their writing style kind of went in line with what right. everybody else was doing. It, it was more the art homog- direction changed. It was more homogenous yeah. by the time the Sean Babies and the Dan That's Shoes a good word. Yeah, came along. Totally. Whereas EGM was unique. Yeah. When it first came out, and that's why people remember it fondly. And I really hope Little Gamer can recapture some of that. Mm-hmm. It, it it deserves to be appreciated, and I hope it will be. Yeah, should be cool. We'll see what happens. Um, it's called Little Player. A oh, little player, sorry, Little Gamer. Now little people are going to go to Little Gamer. And be like, there's no site here, fucking asshole. Or, or there's another web. There's another <laughs> magazine called Little Gamer. That's porno. Yeah, like YouTube. Red. Martin's like, you guys fucking ruined me. Thanks. Well, greatest podcast in the world. That's I have true. no fucks to give about his success or failure. <laughs> Good dicks. Uh, yeah, but they're like I said, they're on they're in uh, you know Facebook, littleplayer.com, Facebook, and Twitter. You know you should you should check it out, especially if you got kids. Get a get a subscription, man, and share it with your kids. Read it with them, and you know the the world needs no shell. We get no money from doing this, and yeah. as we've explained, I don't care if Martin profits, no. but. It's a good product. Yeah, we uh, we dig it. I don't know. Is M Bison coming or? How long have we been talking for? It's been like a couple hours. Probably it's been a couple hours. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to bring up? No, I'm out of stuff. I want to mention Dark Souls. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because you know the last podcast I talked about it at length. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of corrections I want to make about the lore. It's not that it really matters, but I'm gonna bring it up anyway. I had mentioned how when you become when you get killed in the game, you get hollowed. Yes. Not 100 percent true. Oh, now I, all credibility out the window. All I'll never believe anything you say. That's my phrase, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. All credibility out the window. Um, That's why I use it. When, when, when an undead in Dark Souls becomes hollow, that means they've completely given up hope, okay. which means all of their humanity is gone. That's when they become the monsters that you fight. Okay. So when you're, when you're killing monsters, when you're killing undead in Dark Souls, they are people that were once like you, but with all of their hope completely evaporated mm. so when i was saying that when you die you become hollow that's not necessarily true you're reboron but and here's the interesting meta element of it dark souls is such a crushingly hard game that the idea is as you die over and over to the same challenges some people are going to give up mm-hmm. when you give up that's when you become hollow mm. That's when you just become a monster. It's an interesting meta element. Mm-hmm. Like when you quit playing, you're no longer relevant to what's going I would, on. I would quit. I'd be. I, I can't take hard games anymore. I'm too old. That's all I wanted to say. Is I wanted to correct the whole thing about the hollowing. Now this is that's the new thing we're going to do now. Corrections. We'll go back and listen to our episodes. Here's all the things we fucked up and got wrong. Well, I'm not admitting I got anything wrong. No, no, I no. What, I, what I'm saying is, we're going to do that segment from now on. We'll be like, okay, we'll have corrections, and then, oh, dead silence, because we're never wrong. You're right. See, you're you're not wrong. Once I know. again, I know. Um, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I want to say I. Uh, you finished it. Yeah. Okay. Since since Dark Souls three came out, I've been playing it like a fucking fiend. I finally finished it. I will say that uh, Dark Souls three is my personal favorite in the series. 
Okay. I also think it's the easiest in the series. Now, you just got done saying that it's crushingly hard. Well, for people that are not familiar with it. Okay. So if you're new to Dark Souls, you're going to find this difficulty curve very punishing. Okay. But in time, and this is the beauty of any good video game, right? Like Ninja Gaiden, the 3D ones for the, for the last-gen consoles, it was the same way. Yeah. At the start, they were really difficult. But the thing is, as you play them and you get better and you start to understand how to utilize the tools at your disposal and you start to understand the enemy attack patterns and your timing gets better and your Twitch gaming gets better, you become encouraged yeah. to advance and do more. Now, when I say Dark Souls 3 is the easiest of the three Dark Souls games, do not by any stretch of the imagination take that to mean the game is easy. It is still a challenging game. Yeah. Of the three, I find it to be the easiest. I think that the enemies are roughly the same difficulty, but the way that they're spaced out and their placement on the on the uh, battlefields mm. in the environments, it's more forgiving than it has been in the past. Also, because of the way they've changed how you spend experience points, the fact that you have a different meter for magic and that certain weapons have special abilities, they've given you more tools with which to succeed. So it's kind of like in the first Dark Souls, the only way you could start a fire is if you had flint and tinder. Mm -hmm. In Dark Souls 3, they give you a lighter. Starting a fire with just a lighter is still hard to do. But the point is it's easier than flint and tinder. Yeah. As long as you have a combustible substance. I watched Survivor. I know. There you go. I watched it too for a long time. <laughs> I really liked it the most because it the progression was easier and I liked the area progression. Yeah. But I, I'm very satisfied with it. Overall, there were a couple of stretches that were difficult. There were two bosses in particular that I found very challenging to get past. But other than that, it was easier than the others. And I actually felt rewarded for the extra grinding. When I got to the last boss, I only died to him once. The second time, I wiped the floor with him. And then was, you plug the controller in backwards, or plug the cartridge in backwards, and then you erased your game. Yeah, I put the disc in upside down. <laughs> and then you erased your game. It erased my PlayStation 4. <laughs> So, oh, man. So better than The Witcher 3? No. Okay. And the reason why I say it's not better than The Witcher 3 is because the same reason why I don't think any of those games are better than The Witcher. Okay, so one thing Dark Souls does really well, it does it better than The Witcher, which is the combat. Mm. And, of course, the level design is very interesting. But The Witcher is just more robust. Okay. There's more to do. I think we might have talked about this before. There are more elements to The Witcher. There is the open world exploration. There is the questing. There is the treasure hunts. Yeah. There is the multiple choices to each quest. There is the diverse and very interesting cast of characters. When I say diverse, I'm not talking about racial diversity or sexual diversity. None of that. What I'm talking about is different people with different mindsets different from different walks of life. Yeah. Intellectual diversity is what I'm talking about. Okay. You know, when you go into the cities, you meet people with a certain attitude. When you're out in the in the countryside, you meet people with a different attitude. There are different races, like, you know, elves and stuff like that. They have different attitudes and mannerisms. Dark Souls doesn't possess that. Dark Souls, the personalities of the characters are essentially all the same. Mm -hmm. um, there's no questing in Dark Souls. There's crafting in Dark Souls. I can't say that it doesn't have that. But The Witcher 3 is just... It's a more robust experience. There's horse riding. There's boat riding. There's diving for treasure. There's, you know, factions that you work with. There's multiple choices on how every quest can complete itself. Yeah. There's political intrigues. 
there are factions fighting against each other, and you have to choose. It's like Dark Souls doesn't have any of that. I can't call Dark Souls a better game. You know, a lot of people want to say that Dark Souls and Bloodborne, the FromSoft games, are better than The Witcher 3, but they only really do one thing better than The Witcher 3. That one thing, in my opinion, is not enough to elevate it over The Witcher 3. Right. The Witcher 3... So people are saying that? That it's better? Uh, there are some people that have put like Bloodborne above The Witcher 3 for Game of the Year. And yeah. There's most, sort of different types of games in a way, though. I don't mo- most people still believe that The Witcher 3 is the Game of the Year, but th- I've seen people put Bloodborne above it, and it's like, no, you can't put it above it. It's not a better game. It's just better at one Who thing. Who gives out that award? Game of the year. Well, I guess whoever. Oh, okay. Not us, so they don't fucking matter. Yeah, that's true. So, anyway. Uh, well, no, I, I like you're not talking about like the Spike Video Game Awards, right? No, because that would have been like <laughs> Call of Duty or something. But uh, and yeah, best, no, the best way- soundtrack of the year, Grand Theft Auto. <sighs> we don't have to talk about that. Dillip already beat that dead horse. Yeah, he did a good job doing it. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I just that's all I wanted to bring up was Dark Souls. Oh, um. Ruby three is out on Blu-ray now. Oh yeah! In fact, I believe my copy is waiting for me. I got, uh, I got to, uh, I got to watch it. I watched the first two episodes on YouTube, and then I got sidetracked. Not that I didn't like it, but you know, I just got sidetracked with stuff. And I watched watch like five episodes of it. I wasn't as enthralled by it as I was by the first two seasons. Oh, like I wasn't no as Monty. into it. You know, I think it's no Monty is one thing. I think another aspect of it is it just turned into a tournament show. Oh, did it? Well, yeah, I mean that's what they were building to in the first. Well, they were building to that, but I didn't know the whole season was. Well, it's it's a tournament now, and it's like, man, how many more fucking tournament animes do I have to watch? I liked it more when the storyline was about the world building and the characters interacting and learning about what's happened to the world and developing the characters in their personal storylines. Yeah, you know, like Yang losing to that girl at the end of the second season in a fight. I'm like, oh shit, this is interesting. Yeah, does that storyline really need to be resolved in a tournament? Wouldn't it be more interesting if Yang was like, girls? I got to go. There's something I have to do. And she goes to train. Right. Like, wouldn't that be more fascinating to you than like, oh, okay, all the schools are getting together to have a tournament fight. Like, I just don't need the The tournament thing is so fucking played out. Stop it. Enough. Enough with the fucking tournaments. Leave that to Dragon Ball. That's a Dragon <laughs> Ball thing. Not every fucking martial, not every high school has to have a fighting tournament. Right. There are just more interesting ways to resolve that. I think... Berserk had a tournament storyline that was like two two chapters yeah. of the manga. You know, that was it. And it was more because Guts was traveling the world and testing his skill against other people. Like this tournament thing is such a fucking cliched go to. I'm just tired of it. Yeah, um I think the uh the samurai game had a tournament. It was like one episode. Did it? Yeah. Ryunosuke just fought in it to make money. Like, Did I have a tournament? Yeah. But it was like one but it wasn't like wasn't like an arc. It was just like one episode. Like there's a tournament going on, and somehow I got roped into participating. Like, oh, you could do like a big fight prize, and I was like, good, I can buy more booze. That's right. That's right. I remember it now. But it, yeah, it wasn't like. I but didn't... like the motivation was to buy more booze, but then it turned into like something way more elaborate that led to something else outside the tournament. The tournament was just a setup for a more interesting thing. Well, and I had James's character Arashi. And Melissa's character, Kachi, they were dedicated sword fighters. They were dedicated duelists. I never put them in a tournament. I would just have them go and fight people, or people would come to them and challenge them to a yeah, duel. Yeah, like you're passing through this town, and there's like... Somebody's heard of you, or you've heard of somebody, and you yeah. want to test your skills, they want to test their skills. It doesn't need to be a fucking stupid <laughs> tournament. I'm just... Okay. 
I'm so it's so played out now. And that was kind of the thing that disappointed me about Ruby is like, oh, it's a tournament. So I'm going to get scenes of these characters sitting in chairs, watching a fight and talking about it. Right. Is there anything more fucking boring than that? <laughs> you know, well. I guess I should reserve my judgment because I've only seen like right. maybe well, two or three episodes. And I have only watched like the first four or five. I'm not saying that it's bad. Seeing the characters interact is fun, but I couldn't invest myself in it at the time. Maybe now that I can watch the whole thing in one shot, yeah, I, I, I could have anyway. But I prefer that. You know, maybe um, was it like twenty twenty five bucks or something? I don't know. Uh, I right? want to say I paid fifteen for it on Amazon. Really? I'm a Prime member. That's very cheap. Okay. I think I got it cheaper because I'm a Prime member. Yeah, I got. Prime. So that's not a Prime show. Prime is way too fucking expensive. The only thing I'll say about Prime, now that they're offering discounts, if you're a Prime member, you get discounts on video games and you That's get discounts on stuff. That's kind of cool. And the free shipping. Yeah. I have bought so much on Amazon as a Prime member that the shipping basically pays for the subscription. Right. <laughs> you know, it's worth it if you're going to do you, a lot if of If you do, yeah. Shopping. If you buy less stuff, yeah. I got it a while back because I started buying more. When I started Red I, Repro, I was buying more shit. I don't me. even use it for the video streaming or the no. music streamings. I don't use it for any of that. But that's what that's what pisses me off about Prime is that's what you're paying for. You're like, I don't use that, but I still have to pay for it. It's like a hundred fucking dollars for what, you know? A little shipping, whatever. It's a little lame. Well, but I'm Ruby not... Season 3. You know why Ruby Season 3 is cool, though? There is one good reason why. Because uh, Vic Mignogna does a voice. Oh, is he a voice on it? Yeah, he's Ruby's Uncle Crow. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And thank you for sending me that video that you oh, sent Oh, of me. him telling off the fundamentalist Christians? That was so, so awesome. Just shows you what a cool guy he is. Yeah. Yeah, just look at what what, what would we type into Google. Just Vic Mignogna... Christians anime convention something yeah. like that. Just yeah, just do like a Vic Mananya tells off Christians. Yeah, at YouTube, and then young. there's a really cool video of him, and he starts out trying to be reasonable with them, but unfortunately they ridicule gets, him. Yeah, he gets just, dragged into their crazy world, and voices rise, and yeah, it's just it's, it's a it was a shame. He tried so hard though. He tried to you know, like I want to share my experience inside this industry with you and maybe help to enlighten you and understand, you know, but it, no, they're just like, those people weren't even willing to like come halfway. No, it's like, no, he was trying to communicate with them at the start. He wasn't discrediting everything they were saying. He was trying to communicate with them. Like this is, this is how we, this is how we establish peace and come to accords through compromise. Yeah. And they weren't even willing to compromise. They weren't willing to budge at all. So of course he got, they're all going to be judged. There's a, Place in hell waiting for you, whatever the guy said. Yeah. Just like, oh, wrath, judgment. <laughs> just like, oh, you can't. Yeah, all the all the ugly things that turn people off of religion. And I'm not religious. I'm an agnostic. Truth, me may, too. truth be told, I don't know. Me too. I don't know if there's anything greater than this out there. I would never be the type of person to say, yes, there is, because I don't know. I would never be the type of person to say, no, there isn't, because, again, I just right. don't know. Yeah. So I'm comfortable being agnostic. That describes me. Yeah, I'm like I I believe there's something. Yeah, I believe there's something, but I don't, I don't know what it is. We haven't defined it. I'm yeah. just not the type of person to blind faith. Yes, I believe. Yeah, like it. like I don't believe in ghosts or monsters or demons or none of that stuff. I enjoy stories about them, yeah. but I acknowledge them as just stories. I don't believe any of it's real. You know, I saw a truck driving through my neighborhood the other day it was, was that uh, bison driving it no 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 is he looking uh, for you the, the, no it, it be, ironically it's what we're talking about it, it was a paranormal investigator driving around 
Yeah, I don't. Like I don't. Real life Ghostbusters. That's strange that they're operating in this area. Yeah. I actually have a relative who's part of like a Ghost Chasers club. Yeah, but they ever have I, they ever like see anything? I'm sure he believes he has. Okay, <laughs> that's sort of trying to go. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, but I don't believe none of that stuff. But yeah, I I believe there's something out there, but I don't know what it is, and I choose not to define it. And honestly. Well, we know what's out there. There's 12 universes. Oh, right, right. And they're all ruled by the king of all, and mm-hmm. he's going to hold a tournament, and everybody's... Sorry. Great. So our ultimate existence is down to a fucking martial arts tournament. <laughs> Fuck this shit. Yeah. I guess here's my point about it. Does confirming or disproving the existence of God change anything? Since the dawn of time, when we've had mythology... It's just started wars. Well, like, well, I mean, it's also led to some good things, too. It's not just started wars. But my, here's my point. We've gone all this time without proving it. It's not something that needs to be proven. <laughs> right. Just live your life, man. Yeah. You're going to get to the end. You know what's going to happen? You're either going to go somewhere or you're not. Yeah. Either way, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you're dead. You're not coming back. Yeah, George Carlin had a thing about religion. He's always like, do you ever notice all these different religions? You know why they all fight? Because they all wear different hats. You ever notice that? Every, every religion has their own hats. You know, that's why they can't get along. Yeah. If I ever had a religion, I'd have one rule. Hats optional. Carlin was great. I remember when he first Another started. good thing, uh, we were talking about Alan Rickman in Dogma, what George Carlin. Oh, yeah? He was in it, wasn't he? He was the uh, pastor that unveiled the uh, Buddy Christ. Mm-hmm. I remember when Carlin started talking about religion, how like controversial it was. Like When he did it, it was controversial. Yeah. But uh, he'd be crying now if he could see what the <laughs> internet has turned into. Well, he's, uh, he's well, one of the, his last uh, HBO stand-up was, I believe, 2008. And he was, uh, he had said, he said in the standup, he had just turned 70. He just had his 70th birthday. And he, one of the things he said is like, could you imagine what this world's going to be like 50 years from now? It's just going to be a big, stinking, smoking ball of shit. <laughs> well, he won't have to be around for it. Yeah. I remember the, uh, the, the priest who uh, does the church services at the church I grew up in. Yeah. I don't go there anymore, but my mom still goes. And, uh, I remember I sat down and talked to him once. He's like, you know, I love Carlin. And I'm like, you? <laughs> wow. You're not supposed to like George Carlin. He's an atheist. <laughs> and he's like, you know what? I know. I know I shouldn't listen to him, but I think he's funny. I think, you know, him and God are going to have a conversation <laughs> about some things. For eventually. sure. For sure, man. You know? I told him, I think, you know, what's going to happen. I think Carlin's going to go up there. If, if, it, if, it, if there's a heaven and Carlin ends up there, he's going to be like, well, fuck me. I was wrong. <laughs> You know, Carlin's not going to fucking give a shit. Yeah. Like, okay, I was wrong. There is a God, you know, like if there is one. But yeah, I just. Well, he talked about death. It was, it was so ironic that his last stand up, like, you know, a few months before he died, he was talking about death and talking about how, you know, he's like, whenever you go to a funeral, there's always somebody who's like, you know, I bet he's up there right now smiling down at us. First of all, there is no up there for people to be smiling down from. Mm-hmm. But if there were, if there were. I would hope that they had much better things to do than be standing around all fucking day, smiling down at all of us <laughs> down here. Yep. He just had such a way with words, man. Miss him. Didn't even get into Carlin until after he died. Like, I've never listened to any George Carlin. Did When he died, I got all the HBO specials and, like, binge-watched and all of them. How sad is it that people have forgotten the message? Mm-hmm. People revere George Carlin as a visionary, but I don't think people now understand why he was a visionary he was i probably wouldn't have gotten it like if i watched them younger well see when you were younger the things he was talking about weren't things you had to worry about yeah you know the thought control 
the thought policing. Yeah, yeah. Free speech was his thing. People talk about him like he's this great guy, but I don't think people today understand the world he was warning against, the 1984, the Orwellian nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing that. He's in, doing it in a funny, light way. But, but I mean, it's social commentary. Yeah. He was doing it for comedy, but the guy knew what he was saying. He was around in the 60s. He was around during the civil rights movement and the cultural revolution, the hippies, all that stuff. Yeah. He saw how our country was changing and moving away from conservatism. And now, ironically, it's going back to a form of conservatism. <laughs> or maybe not going back, but well, there are people out there that are pushing for it. Yeah. And it's just sad that people want to cite him as a visionary, but we're forgetting the message. It's kind of like World War II, right? You bring up World War II to a kid today, they're going to be like, oh, isn't that the war where Captain America punched Hitler? <laughs> they don't understand the gravity. It's probably the most significant event of the 20th century. Yeah. You know, good and bad, it's the most significant event. Yeah, they, I mean, people always talk about, like, uh, how important, like, when you go to school, you know, people always talk about math is so important, reading is so important. That's true, but so is history. Yeah. Like they never, nobody puts enough emphasis on history. Like, well, history important too. And like, you know, observing when people were acting in a certain way and trying to get you to act in a certain way and not be you yeah. and not speak your mind and what that leads to. And Carlin was one of those advocates of free speech. The whole, the seven words you can't say on TV. That was specifically a knock on television saying, look, you guys are giving words way too much power. Yeah, They're just words. You only have power if you give them power. But you know who is not feeling like he has any power and is not smiling down at us from the cab of that truck? Oh, it's really nice of him, though, to just wait. Like, he waits until, you know, he's like, I'm going to run there. Well, get my revenge, but, you know, until. Here's what I think, though. I think, number one, he's learning from our podcast. That's true. And number two, the only reason he we let him live is because he doesn't interrupt it. Yeah. It's only when we're done do we let him try to run us over. Yeah. Because if he tried to stop this podcast early, there would be no next time in a truck. So, so well, I guess we should we should hope for that then. We should hope that maybe one day he does try to interrupt us in the middle and we can just finally be done with this and get rid of him. I think he just enjoys being a part of the show. Yeah. Personally. Mm-hmm. I think he's like, you know what? If I wait for them to finish, I get to try to run them over. Yeah. And then I'll be... To, I'll be famous too. I get to relive my greatest moment yeah. every other week. Him and Denny both are always trying to take us out of the spotlight. I give a shit about Denny. <laughs> Poor Denny. What Denny did do is he set up our phone number. Mm, yes. So, uh, yeah, you can call us 773 492 2642. You can call, you can engage us if you got any uh, questions. Any complaints? We're ready to hear them, man. We'd love mm-hmm. to hear uh, what you guys... Uh, and none of this. Your mother! Uh, so, uh, yeah. Or, yeah. conversely, more of that because we wouldn't mind adding to the show. That's true, yeah. Because if you do stuff like that, you will become part of history. Don't be a fucking tryhard. It yeah, has to be natural. Yeah, exactly. It don't matter because, like we said, we just delete the stuff, which we've been doing because, mm-hmm. yeah, nobody... Uh, I'm just saying anything interesting. Call up, I, this is going to be funny. Yeah. I'm gonna call Gary and see. And no, no, your father. Yeah, I don't want none of that shit. Yeah, don't flip it. Try, yeah, try harder. Yes, you good scrub. But it, <laughs> there you go. Uh, we're on Facebook. Uh, we're on Twitter, and we were just talking about Twitter before the show. How I, uh, how I want to commit to uh, doing better things with Twitter. 
right now Twitter just like regurgitates what we post on Facebook. We're going to start doing like some hashtags and starting some dialogue and getting some good stuff going. So I'm going to do that starting this week. Or actually, starting last week, I did it. When I posted the, the update, uh, I put hashtag Janeway sucks. We got hits from that. Really? Yeah. So. Did yeah. anyone respond or was it just hits? Well, no, it was just like people brought up the hashtag responded. That brought them into, we got new likes on Facebook and new follows on Twitter from just one hashtag. So shit works. Who knew? Social media. Well, Janeway sucks is kind of a clickbaity. It's yeah, yeah, it's true. It's clickbaity, but you know what? Fuck it, because we didn't do it to be clickbaity. We did it because that's how we feel. Which is it's true, yeah. It's not how we feel. It's true. It's not well, just like our opinion. It's fact. Our feelings are your she reality. Sucks. It's a fact. Yeah, there you go. We're also on YouTube. Um, I think some more stuff coming down the it's pipe. It's coming down the pipe for YouTube. We uh, we've been talking about a couple things that we think. Uh, are going to be pretty funny. You heard it. The podcast player on iTunes, best way to listen to us. I've listened to us on the website and then accidentally closed the tab and forgot. Uh, and then you got to start back at the you beginning. All your progress. You got to scrub through and find out where you were. Fuck that. Use the podcast player. But now that we're on Google Play, same thing. You can go on Google Play, listen on your Android device. It's just, you know, it's a lot better. You know, you can leave a review. You can like and share posts that we put up there, man. Anything helps spread the word. Like I said, we don't need it. But it's always nice to know that people are responding. But even yeah. if they aren't, even if they're just absorbing the podcast and they're not really opining or anything or adding to it, it's fine. Yeah. You know, whatever. But it, we're not it, doing it for that. We're just doing it because it's fun. We're doing it because it's fun. And we like to it. hang out and talk. And why, why not just record and throw it out there? What's weird is now that we're doing this, people are actually saying like, like they feel like they know us. We were, we were supposed to record this a couple of days ago, but Tom wasn't feeling good. So um, now we're recording two days later, which is fine. But the reason I'm telling you that story is because my mom said to me, she's like, how's Tom doing? Is he better? You know, I hope he, do. oh, I hope you guys get to record tonight. I hope Tom, like she, she doesn't know you, but she does now because she yeah. listens to the And podcast. I've met her a few times. Yeah. But. but that's all you've done is met her. Now she's listening to these podcasts. She feels like she knows you. She's, she's like concerned about your, your, your well-being. Like, oh, I hope he oh, feels better. But uh, you told me a story about somebody who, you know, was listening to the show. Doesn't know me, but then he does now, you know, had, you know, had an opinion. Yeah. So it's like, it's. I know people that have listened to this podcast that don't care about nerd culture. Oh, really? Yeah, but they listen to the podcast and they're like, I love listening to you guys talk because we can tell you have a natural rapport with each other and you play off of each other very well. And it's almost like you're sitting in a room listening to these two very entertaining people talk. And legit, I feel very flattered to hear that. Yeah, that's cool. We can talk about things that they don't care about in such a way that they're invested in it they feel like they're a part of the conversation even if they're just like that person at a party that just sits in the room and laughs at all the jokes and never really gets involved those people still feel like they're a part of the conversation so that was very flattering so we like to talk about how awesome we are and it is true we are awesome but it's always nice to hear comments like that because it means that we have a a casual demeanor to us that is um, it's accessible 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 to people like it the average yeah we I mean, sometimes I get a little lofty with my ideas. They talk about stuff like 2001. But, you know, when you hear in my voice, I'm not talking about it because I think that, you know, you this is something you need to know. I'm legitimately excited about it. I think when somebody's legitimately excited about something, no matter what it is, you can't help but be a little excited for that, about that, too. Yep. You know, so. I agree. So uh, that's it. Episode 8. Gaming AM. Greatest podcast in the world. I'm Ray Price. I'm Tom Tolios.
her mother. <laughs>